Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Nostrovia, listeners. Nostrovia, Troy. Nostrovia. To your health, everybody. To your fucking health. And I hope that, you know, the last few weeks have been good to you. Uh, we're maybe a few days off on this because we forgot that, goddamn it, February is a short fucking month. And I planned a trip to Amsterdam. And I don't know, I felt like just flying over to Europe for a weekend, as you do. Um, and I was over there. Being gay in Amsterdam, and it was God, it was just fucking great, and I couldn't get enough of that. That just that that lovely European culture, uh, very different from what we experience here uh, in the states. It's it's a completely different lifestyle, and it just operates so differently. Have you ever been anywhere in Europe, Troy? I have not, Roger. It's on my list. I, I had just kind of made an agreement to myself. Not this year. Not this year. This year has been, you know, I just bought a house here in Vegas. So all of my time and energy have been going into that and money. <laughs> um, so I, I, but I made a commitment to myself next year, 2024. I will go to Europe, somewhere in Europe. I have my, kind of my top picks. Uh, and it's kind of sad because back in 2020, Roger, my spring break was all planned. I had this airfare. I had the hotels. I had everything purchased. I was supposed to go to Switzerland. Oh. And that was March of 2020. And of course, we all know what happened in March of 2020. Oh. And, and unfortunately, that never happened. So... I'm jealous when I get to see people go to Amsterdam and Spain and Italy and, and, and Greece, all these places that I've been dying to go, but it will definitely happen. I don't know about staying at any hostels. That's not high on my <laughs> list. Not only, not even because of this movie, just I've always been really weird about that. I don't want to stay like in an open room with a bunch of random strangers. Oh my God. I that I can't think of anything more uncomfortable. Right. Honestly. That's like my worst <laughs> My worst fear is like ugh, being in a room with a bunch of people you have to sleep with that you have no idea who they are. I just like that doesn't appeal to me. But then the hostile franchise itself, particularly one and two, does not help matters any. <laughs> not at all. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine like after seeing these films and I saw them around the time they came out. Like I've been I've been for the most part, I've been in a, a hostile fan. I'll dare say it uh, since the very first one, the first entry starring the. Just stunningly beautiful. And I cannot emphasize enough just how in love I am with Jay Hernandez. Oh my God. Like, if I saw him, I would just bat my lashes and, <laughs> and try to seduce him because he is so gorgeous. Uh, and he's in that one and he's in this one. And I've been following him ever since. And I will say, once they went to direct to video, I was really hesitant to watch them because I knew there was going to be like a drop in quality, uh, which was proven true for the most part when we visited the third entry, Hostel 3. Uh, I will say it did not, it lived up to my expectations of it not being a great movie. <laughs> like, I will say that, you know? Yeah, we covered that one now about a year ago. And yeah, Hostel 3 takes quite the departure from the franchise because it takes place in 
Fabulous Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Yes. Yeah. Woo. Um, yeah. And it's actually directed by Scott Spiegel, who directed uh, Intruder, one of my favorite 80s slasher flicks, and who is one who is a producer on both Hostel and Hostel 2. So it kind of made sense. But again, yes, it was kind of a, a drop in quality, but also like just story impact. I, I feel like there would be as problematic as some of the issues in, in Hostel and Hostel 2 are. I feel like there is a very societal commentary that is heavy throughout both films that the third one obviously just drops in order to play the more safer slasher conventions. I do find that it's the story that is woven through the first two hostile films to be quite actually terrifying because in my mind, this shit really happens. Oh my, absolutely. You cannot convince me otherwise that this shit does not happen. And in fact, Eli Roth got the idea for hostile, the first hostile from something that apparently that he saw on the dark web. So you cannot tell me, I'm sorry. I will never, ever not believe that this shit does not happen. Oh, I believe without doubt that this is exactly the kind of thing when I hear of like, um, oh, I don't know, like parties of people going missing or anything to do with like people being like when you find that people are being smuggled out of country. Like these are the things that really like haunt me in my nightmares. Like I'm not scared of ghosts. I don't believe in the supernatural, but I do believe in how dark people can get. And when you find out there's a group of people, a network of people, if you will, working together in unison to make this kind of shit go down and you find out they've got money on top of it, I can't think of anything more horrifying because then there really is nothing you can do (laughs) to fight this opponent, you know? Well, in the annals of true crime, there are several instances where situations virtually like hostile have indeed happened. So to say it never happens, is absolutely 100% false. You know, there was a whole case in, in Texas of the, um, the kid that was kidnapped during spring break back in, I think, ni- 1990. I-, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. They made it into a movie, even um, a movie based on what happened to him called Borderlands that had a uh, writer strong in it from um, what's that? Topinga. When this boy meets world. When this boy meets yes, when boy, world. Boy. Okay, so he was in this film, but it's, but the, Mark was Mark, Mark, Mark something, Mark. Austin or something. He went with to uh, to um, uh, to celebrate spring break down in South Padre Island with a bunch of friends, and they crossed over to Mexico. And he got kidnapped right off the streets of Mexico, and was brutally, brutally, brutally murdered along with several other people that these this group kidnapped. Uh, in terms of, they did it for sacrificing, like devil sac. These were like true devil worships. This is a true thing that oh happened. Look it up. Uh, but shit like this happens all the time. The Australian backpacker murder. Oh I my mean, God. that's what Wolf Creek was based on. So th- the idea of hostile is terrifying to me because yeah, imagine being in a foreign country. You're not familiar with your surroundings. You're not familiar with the language. And it just makes you all that more helpless. Today, it's all about we're doing things again backwards because we started with Hostile 3, but we are actually covering Hostel 2 today, which I have seen argued by many, and I might even agree with this, that this is the best of the franchise. I'm going to say it right now. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say not only that, I'm going to say that I think it's by far, I would dare say it's Eli Roth's best film. And I have reason for it. I have distinct reason for it. And I think it's because it's, it's the one time I have seen him as a director craft a strong female protagonist who makes genuinely really great decisions 
and you root for her. He so often mishandles females in his films. There's so many scenarios I can think of where he's had, uh, you know, major female characters say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, do something that doesn't feel authentic to a woman. I've never felt he's really been great at directing women. Um, I will not say that about this character of Beth, who we will come to get to know very well over the course of this uh, review. I would dare say that she is one of my favorite quote-unquote final girls that I can think of in recent memory. And I love that she not only knows how to fight and how to protect herself and defend herself, but she knows how to think and she has brains. And she is very enticing to watch as you see her start to calculate exactly what's going on. She's a badass, and she is one of the major reasons I think this movie operates as well as it does. I agree with you 100%. I actually think that the, the combination of the three female protagonists in this film is quite interesting. Their their dynamic together is feels authentic. Uh, I mean, you get you get three really extremes, and generally that sometimes throws throws the viewer off because they can come off as just being like. Uh, stereotypes, characters that are thrown into a film. Oh, you got the you got the slut, you got the you know the strong-willed one, you got the nice innocent virginal one. But in this case, you have those three. But for some reason, it doesn't feel like forced. Uh, it feels very natural. The interactions, even between like Lorna and Whitney, who are the complete opposite. You know, Whitney's the the party girl, the slut. Lorna, played by Heather Matarazzo, is the I mean, quintessential, like doe-eyed, innocent, you know, you just want to grab her many times during this film and just give her a big hug because she is so like naive to the world around her, but the dynamic works somehow. It just, it does. And I, so I do agree with you. This is the one time Eli Roth really wrote. I, I think three, actually all three of the female characters are, are written pretty well in this film and the only other time he kind of comes close to it i would say is maybe the green inferno with the character of justine the lead in that is actually a pretty badass once she gets you know her groove going but no i mean you go from hostile which a lot of people um a lot of the criticism of the first hostile i think have to do with how much of like a bro douchey bro story it is you know the jay hernandez character of paxton and then um the other character what was his name ah. josh josh yeah but those two and then you throw on that what was his ollie the ollie character and you just got these three like douchey like almost unlikable i wouldn't even say almost unlikable i'm gonna say unlikable trio of, of guys whose whole quest throughout this backpacking trip is to get pussy and that's it. And you get some moments of almost uncomfortable, I would say, verging on homophobia, but also like gay undertones within the characters that are played. But it's it, it's really weird and awkward. And because of the characters reactions to it, it doesn't make them any more likable. So I, I think that was a, a big issue with Hostel 3 is your, the protagonists just weren't really likable paxton gets a little bit more tolerable towards the end of the film but in this case hostile 2 which we'll get right into you have three fairly likable fun characters like i would love to follow these girls around and go back and, and go partying with them go drinking with them uh because they seem like a hoot they're they're a blast yeah yeah i think that the the reason that this film at the end of the day serves a greater purpose than than its predecessor is 
plain and simple, better characters. The characters in the initial hostel serve their purpose. I think in a way they were meant to be a little unlikable. Paxton has flaws, but you still root for him. There's a relatability to that character. I believe that douchebag exists, but he's still going through some horrible things, you know, and you still want to see him survive at the end of the movie. Here, it's laid out for you. It's almost as though Eli Roth took the the critiques and the criticisms on that character structure from the initial film and said, you know what, I'm going to say, fuck it. I'm going to flip it, and I'm going to make sure that even though these characters here are flawed, they are completely likable. Making them women and treating them with a level of understanding, and I dare say respect, uh, that you don't normally get from him. Uh, you never see any of these three girls... Well, never mind. I can't say that. <laughs> I can't say that. Because I, mean, I think of Heather Matarazzo being hung upside down naked. Uh, getting slashed with a blade. I mean, that is really... That is definitely exploiting her. So I can't... I gotta take a step back. But up until that point, up until that point, they, um, they're they given time to feel believable and be treated somewhat respectfully, especially the character of Beth. You find out some aspects about this character that make her seem very strong powerful, almost intimidating when you learn certain things about her. And she handles herself so well. So I gotta say kudos to him. I don't I do not think he is the best filmmaker out there per se, but I do think he has a good understanding of the craft. And I think this is an example of him growing some from from some of his previous mistakes. And I'd like to see more of this approach from him because he does a quite good job with these girls. Yeah, well I'm excited because it's been a while since we've gotten anything from any and he finally announced that he's going through with his Thanksgiving film, which I cannot wait for because that is one of the best trailers, fake or otherwise, that I think I've ever seen. So I'm super excited. So hopefully he uh, takes a lot of what he learned from the critiques that he has gotten as a filmmaker, because I know there are people that absolutely loathe Eli Eli Roth, and you can read some pretty scathing opinions about his work. But I'm super excited because I do think that when what he does best is kind of the, the gritty hostile type things like i i'm not really a big fan of like cabin fever it's okay the green inferno is fine but like the hostile films to me one and two even though i now i do prefer the second one they're just from a filmmaking perspective they're just more cohesive and and they they are i think making a a statement beyond just like oh here we go. We're we're gonna um, you know have a flesh eating virus. These movies have a th- a theme, like I said, like a, a real world theme that runs through through them about like human nature and good versus evil and how a person can be pushed to do something evil if they have the right incentive, right? So I, I like that with these two films, and you know I, I think we should get right into our overall review of the film but first we just got to push this because gosh i think we just posted roger and i'm not saying that trust me listen i'm I'm not saying this because i'm trying to get people to subscribe i'm saying this because i think it's the 100 truth i think we just posted one of the best episodes we've ever done period on our patreon and it is a movie that you would never expect me to say that it's one of our best episodes but I really think it is. And we, me and Roger covered the 1994 shot on video, once ultra rare and ultra, ultra controversial based on the title. We covered L.A. AIDS Jabber. We did. <laughs> we we did. did. And 
I, you know, going into the film, I thought, oh, this is just going to be kind of a throwaway conversation. But I sincerely think that it is one of our best episodes we've ever done. Uh, we really get deep. You, you, go, you go deep. You reveal some things, some personal things that connect to the film, and and I, I think we hit the. Uh, there's a lot of humor, but I thought I, I, I don't think we're like unnecessarily like cruel to the film. Like we bring up a lot of good points, and I mean, <laughs> it, it was fun to do, and I was really surprised how good it turned out, and and so guys, if you. If you would, and I know we have, you know, we're up to the double digits again for our patrons. We have lucky 13. We want to get more. Go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. This is our 20th full length review. Uh, We also have some mini episodes, some talking bodies episodes. We have all kinds of goodies up there for you to listen to. You subscribe, you get access to it immediately. You can decide if it's for you or not, but just give it a chance because it really helps us as well. It's going to help us grow the show and get some merchandise available and things like that so well we've seen a huge uptick we've seen a big uptick with support lately i mean i've i just gotta say like thank you to all of you who've been participating and listening um we'd love to see further support from you guys you can get you can you can subscribe for as little literally two dollars a month a month two dollars a month gets you access now to i think um i want to say like 12 uh, top three. We do top three mini episodes where we count our, our top three choices in various categories. I think you get twelve of those. And we do them every month, so you're going to get every month. You'll get access. We get so check it out. I just want to say check it out because I really think some of our best episodes are actually up there. Maybe though we are transitioning now into what we will consider one of our new best episodes, and that is Hostel Two. Man, I have been very excited to discuss this title because this is a title that when we look back on our conversations. Considering the podcast and just personal conversations between you and I, Hostel 2 is a title that has come up multiple times between the two of us because you know I have a love for it. I know you have, I don't want to say an issue, but you had a specific reaction to a specific scene in this film that really stuck with you and you kind of carried it with you. And so like reapproaching the title for me has been very enticing because I've known that you're going to have probably a pretty audible reaction to your thoughts on the specific moment that happens within the film. I've been very excited to hear that from you. Um, and I'm so curious, like now, after all this time, are you happy you revisited it? Uh, I am. I am. Uh, I think time has maybe given me a lot of perspective. And when I first saw this film, I saw this film when it first came out in the theater, actually. And yeah, you're ta- we're talking about a very specific scene that horrified me and almost made me get up and leave the theater. And I really have never had that reaction to a film. And I can't really say what it was with this particular scene until we, we get there. And then I will elaborate further on my initial reaction to it. And it was it's literally the only reason I've never wanted to watch this film again. And I've said I would never watch this film again. But you picked it and, you know... I was like, okay, I'll bite the bowl and I'll watch it again because I do remember other aspects of the film I quite did enjoy. So I figured, oh, well, I'll watch it this time and I can just forward through that scene. I don't have to watch it because I know what happens. I don't need to watch it again to get the gist of it. But I, I, I braced myself when the scene started and, and I watched it and I'm like, okay, yes, it's still pretty horrifying. But I will save my new reaction for it until we get there, right? And I think everyone I everyone knows what we're, I think the scene we're talking about. It is the scene that the film is notorious for, and it's the scene that's on the cover art, well, the main cover art, and it's Heather Moderatsu's death scene. 
but the film, you know, this is a sequel that plays it very much like Friday the 13th part two in its opening. We get, uh, we get the return of Jay Hernandez, this Paxton character. Uh, once the opening credits are through and the opening credits is a montage of someone like burning belongings from a backpack. There's like pictures and whatnot, and the person's throwing these pictures and passports and stuff into a fire and keeping, of course, the valuables. And we can make the inference based on seeing the first film, what is going on here. But then it transitions to uh, Paxton being found in the train station and taken to the hospital. I love that it just picks right up. I mean, it's kind of almost in the shade of um, like Halloween too. It's like, you know, the the events that take place immediately afterwards moving forward. Um, I love that you get this whole kind of uh, reintroduction to his character. You really come into this thinking that this is going to follow him uh, predominantly over the course of the film. You'll be focusing on his character because he was the major focus of the first movie to an extreme. Um, You really came to like him despite his flaws. And he did a lot of crazy shit (laughs) to survive that movie. Like, lest we forget, he did some horrible things. He killed people and he reacted rather uh, humanely to it. He was shocked by what he was doing. You could see it in Jay Hernandez's face, how he was processing this. Um, So you brought that up earlier, the way that people will react uh, to survive, you know, that survival instinct that came out of him. One reason I bring this up is because our focus of this movie has a very different approach uh, at the end of the day, and I, I have to appreciate that. Um, but I did enjoy coming back to see him again. I think he's great. Uh, so sad to see it go down the way it does. Um, and a credits for those opening credits real quick. I think it's really dramatic fashion that they play that footage stark over nothing but the audio of the crackling of the flames. There's no music. It's nothing but the sounds of the fabrics being thrown into the fire and um, just the sound of the burning. I think a really nice dr- dramatic note to start on for this movie. I, I, I agree. It was very, it's very like somber like, yeah. because we know what's happening. We know what's happening, but then, yeah, we get, we get Paxton being brought to the hospital. And of course the police come in to ask him about the place that he has talked about. And, Paxton reveals it was a factory that people uh, are taken to and killed by people who are paying to kill. And he reveals that his two friends were killed and the cop, there's a, there's a male cop and a female cop and the cop, the female cop asks him, she's interpreting for the male cop who was only speaking Italian at this point. Um, He asks, how did you survive? And then we get the flashbacks of Jay Hernandez as all of his like killing people. You're right. He kills numerous people. And I do like the juxtaposition of like Paxton's response to killing because you are right. Paxton is only killing because he fucking absolutely has no chance and it is taking a mental toll on him. You can tell he does not want to do this. There's no enjoyment from him on the flip side the Beth character in this film is also being pushed to kill, right? She has no choice. That's how she has to save herself, but she is getting a, she's not being affected by it nearly as much because she realizes the people that are, she's doing it to absolutely fucking deserve it. And I would like to feel like I would be like the Beth. Like, Oh yes. I just saw you. Uh, yeah. You're fucking get the fuck. You're, I'm going to do whatever I can. To, and I'm not even going to feel fucking bad about it. There's a level of satisfaction. The shit that she does at the end. Of, but well, yeah, he, his response is, I escaped. 
Um, and they asked him who organizes it. They're, they're questioning the hell out of this guy. And of course, because they want answers, but it's starting to get a little like, you're starting to get a little suspicious. Uh, Paxton reveals that it's a hunting club and that he did notice that they all have the same tattoo of a bloodhound. And then the female cop is like, well, that's interesting, but we wanted you to know that we found someone dead in the train station that had that same tattoo. And we saw you on tape. And then all of a sudden, this fucking male cop who is only speaking Italian throughout this whole time until now lifts up his sleeve and he's like, did the tattoo look like this? And it's the fucking bloodhound tattoo. And of course, Paxton's eyes go wide. The orderlies and everyone hold him down. And the male doctor takes a fucking scalpel and basically guts Paxton right there on the hospital bed. Pretty gory. He reaches in and pulls out his intestines. Oh, it's you, wild. I do like the end of the bill because we know something's about ready to go down. Because oh. as Paxton's realizing all the where these where this question is going, there's like the moment where the one orderly goes and locks the door. And we're like, oh fuck, here we go. Oh, it's so good. It's really a great introduction to this character being reintroduced into the film i feel like they they wanted two separate things and they decided to give us both of them the way this plays out here because there is a growing suspense here there's a tension the translator having to repeat everything back like you can feel it you're right like everything is building so well and then for it to cut to be a dream sequence um i feel like they could have literally just given us that one moment i would be like fuck yeah i'm in Uh, but it does end up being a dream sequence he does wake up he reveals that beside him is the lovely jordan lad who is always welcome here at dark night of the podcast um but you find out it is a dream sequence which was kind of a weird choice i thought Uh, okay i have that note i was gonna ask you about that what not that i Hey, I will take seeing Jordan Ladd anytime because she, I mean, Eli Roth always obviously brought her over from Cabin Fever and whatnot, and it was great seeing her, even if she's in the movie two minutes. Okay, so he wakes up. It's a dream. His girlfriend, I think her name's Stephanie, I believe, wakes up, and they have this like argument about him, like how he's reacting, and she's like, you need to get help. You need to tell the police. You need to tell Josh's mom, and he's like, no, no, no. Nobody can know about this. She does reveal that she told her sister where they're staying because they're staying at like her grandparents' house in the middle of nowhere. And he's like, why the hell did you tell your sister? Oh my God. She's like, Paxton, you need to get it together because I'm so freaking tired of this. I'm tired of not being able to sleep. And he's like, you know what? You are never going to have to deal with it again. And he goes downstairs and she sighs and falls back asleep. The next morning she wakes up and we get woken up by this gardener with this loud ass chainsaw, chainsaw and shit. It's like seven in the morning. I'm like, dude, really? You know, she waves to him and then she goes downstairs to the kitchen to reveal the cat is licking Paxton's bloody neck stump. What a great fucking shock moment, man. A a great shock moment, a great shock moment. But again, I'm kind of wondering, like, I would have preferred, honestly, the opening, the first opening that we got that was a dream sequence. I, I kind of get what they were doing, and you just mentioned it, shock value, right? We don't think they're going to kill Paxton off. This dream sequence happens, and oh, he wakes up, and we think as the audience, oh, great, he's safe, and then he gets killed off screen three, two minutes later. Um, if they were just going to kill him like this, I would have just preferred the opening scene, and then it jumped to introducing the three girls without this Jordan Ladd scene, just because I feel like it's pointless, I feel like it's pointless, but I feel like it also adds an element of dread 
Here's why I support it at the end of the day. I think it does feel a bit like they kind of wanted both and they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. Um, and it does have kind of a, um, a an Adrian King-esque vibe to it, which I do like. I appreciate that. You know, at least saying a fond farewell to the character of Pax and giving him an epic death. That does come into play later in the movie. If this scene is literally just for that, keep in mind what Beth discovers later in the film. So, but I do feel like with this moment here... Um, what I like about it is they're clearly back in the States and it's really kind of maybe hinted at, alluded at that the man that's trimming the bushes is the one that did it because of this clean cut, but it's never said like, did Jordan Ladd get killed as well? Because she knows very vague, very vague, but I like the fact that it makes it clear to you as the viewer right off the bat. It doesn't matter where you go. This thing is so big. It will find you. And it's easy as that. He, went through this whole journey to to survive. Brutal, violent journey. He murdered people in order to survive, but he made it. Somehow he made it. Only for this to happen to him, there's no escape. Which makes it clear to you, the viewer, that the only way to root for a new batch of characters, it's going to take a different approach. You know what I mean? I do get what you mean. I just felt it was kind of an odd choice. I don't know. I, I just would have preferred... Whew, the uh the opening because i thought that was shocking enough i mean seeing paxton get gutted that would have been fine with me but yes it is a great reveal of the decapitated head but it just kind of seemed like a throwaway scene like you get jordan ladd in here for two minutes and it's just kind of a throwaway scene we don't even see what really happens to him yes it comes into play later on but it doesn't really nothing to expand on the character of paxton yes i get your point it is frightening as fuck to think that he gets back to the States and he thinks he's safe. He's at a secluded place that nobody's supposed to know about. And he was still found. I mean, and it leaves so many questions. You're right. Did the, did the gardener do it? Uh, did Jordan Ladd get killed? How did they find out he was there? Did they kill her? I don't know. It's just all these questions, but it allows us then to, yes, follow a whole new group of characters that we get introduced to. Not before we get like a motorcycle going through the streets of, uh, Slovakia to deliver a box, which we find out contains Paxton's head to uh, kind of the head of the group who we find out is Sasha, who's sitting there with his two dogs at a nice open cafe, enjoying his coffee when he gets a human head dropped off to him. Oh, you know, you know, without seeing it, because they don't like open the box, but like the bloodhounds are sniffing on it. You know, it's Paxton's head. I just want to take those bloodhounds and nibble on their jowls. They've got star so pretty. They've got these jowls, everybody. They're pretty just hanging boy. down. I just want to grab on them and yeah. pull on them. I love a good dog jowl. Uh, but yeah, um, and then thus is the end of Paxton. He is, in fact, deceased. And you're right. We're transitioning to a new group of characters. And I find it refreshing to say that these characters are, while a trio, nothing at all like the original cast of characters that we were you know, forced <laughs> to follow along uh, the, over the course of the initial film. Uh, these characters are right off the bat significantly more enticing and uh, present a, a, a level of likability that even through their flaws, for example, the character of Whitney, played by the flawed individual themselves, Bijou Phillips. I mean... How gorgeous is she, though? She is gorgeous, and honestly... I can't think of a better role for her. I mean, she's phenomenal in this role because this really, this is Bijou Phillips. I mean, she's loud. <laughs> she's shaking her ass on the dance floor. She's got the tree under the forest. <laughs> so fucking 
Like she, <laughs> she sounds like she just did a shot of helium. Like, but I love her. I, I think she's so funny. I forgot movie. how stunning she is though. In this film, she's just absolutely stunning. Uh, but yeah, she is great. So yeah, we get introduced to our three main female protagonists now, and they are at a drawing class and Roger, Eli Roth gave us a fucking cock shot. And a fat one. That was a Ooh. big old. Ooh. I had to rewind it a few times. Like, Jesus, did I see what I thought I saw? <laughs> Zooming in on it. <laughs> I need to study this for the notes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and I love that all the girls, for the most part, are reacting just like us. Like, you got Heather Matarazzo just gawking at this thing. I mean, you know, she's never seen one in person before. So she's just having a, a wet dream moment for herself right then and there. Uh, but yeah, it's a really fun introduction to these three girls who are taking this art class with this, this luscious, curvaceous Italian teacher who's hosting these nude models for them to draw. It's a really fun introduction. You immediately get to know the personalities and they are very defined. Oh yes. Lorna is, is just their daydream. And then even the teacher's like, Lorna, she's like, oh, I'm just taking in the moment. I'm taking it all in. And then Whitney and, and Beth are conversing. And right away, Whitney makes a comment about Lorna and, and it says exactly what she said. Do you think she's ever seen a cock before? <laughs> and, and then they start talking about where they're going to go. They want to go to, um, Whitney wants to go to Prague. So they're going to pack for Prague. And, the, and during this conversation, they send the male model away and bring in a beautiful female model named Axel. Oh my goodness. Listen, I'm going to say it right now. And ladies, I mean this with the utmost respect, best hits I've ever seen as a gay man. I'm saying this as a piece of art. This woman is stunning. I mean, absolutely stunning. She immediately disrobes all of the, um, the, the artists within the class react audibly. Oh, uh, hold on to your pencils, boys, or whatever that teacher says, you know, with that, <laughs> with that sassy accent as they begin to draw her. And one thing I find so intriguing about this film, and if this is intentional, I've got to, again, give Eli Roth a little credit. There is some definite lesbianic vibes oh, between, yeah. between oh. the character of Axel and the character of Beth. And I, I've got to say, Lauren German is just hypnotizing in this role. Um, you know, fans of the genre are going to remember her as the uh, hitchhiker from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, uh, in which she played a very different character and did it equally as well. And in a brief moment, managed to be one of the most impactful moments of that film. Here she's playing a far more subdued character uh, whose wheels are constantly spinning. Um, and she seems to really be taking in the moment around her. I really appreciate the way this character is developed. And I love the fact that it is heavily, heavily implied uh, at several points over the course of the film that this character is, in fact, possibly a lesbian. And I want that. I love that for her. If that's the case, fuck yeah, I'm here for it. At least bisexual. There's definitely something going on between her and the character of Axel. Um, and that's introduced right away between the two of them. It is, it is, but I feel like, I don't know, I think, yes, definitely on the character of Beth's side. I don't know about the Axel character. I don't know what her motivations really are. Is she truly uh, bisexual or lesbian, or is she doing it with a very specific end in mind? Because we do find out, and it's going to be no no surprise to anybody that's seen the first film, that this character is in on everything that happens. So I was trying to decide, is she really, or is she doing it with an ulterior motive ultimately. 
because she is the one that ultimately gets them to the hostel. But yes, because there's this moment after the the drawing class that uh, Axel walks by and Beth shows her her picture and uh, Axel wants to buy it. She's like, I love that. I want to buy it from her. I want to buy it from you. How much is it? And Beth says, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it. And she gives it to her and Axel's like, well, at least let me buy you a drink. And Beth says, no, 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 we're catching a train to Prague. So sorry, maybe another time. Uh, there's this moment then when the th- three girls, uh, Lorna, Beth, and uh, Whitney are walking through the town and Beth is on the phone with her dad and he wants to put her in the Four Seasons Hotel. And she says, no, dad, don't do that. College kids are not staying at the Four Seasons Hotel. And you kind of get, it's kind of your first glimpse of like maybe her relationship with her father because it is mentioned later on. It does come into play. It's also mentioned that Lorna has been crying and is homesick. She wants to go back to Baltimore. I feel with the approach to Beth's character and what you're talking about with the phone conversation here with the father. um, One thing I think that Roth does really well is like, weave little bits of information all throughout the storyline. Like you're constantly learning things about the characters, about the environment, about how things are executed. Um, One really cool thing about this movie is that it chooses to take the route of last film. You learned what's going on here. Now you're going to see the clockwork of how it works. Uh, A lot of times the story will follow antagonists for a period of time and kind of show you things uh, as, as they go about their day to day in, overseeing and executing this massive murder chamber it's a really great approach but it's constantly following these these three girls here and right off the bat you start to get these little hints towards beth's overall like financial situation the the idea that she is in fact wealthy just how wealthy you learn more and more about it you learn that in fact she's incredibly wealthy more so than any of us may have assumed i like the fact that she's understated about it it's clear that she is not somebody who likes to boast or brag about her wealth and she very much keeps it to herself but you do see moments of her being the one that's signing off on the credit cards it's always coming up in dialogue between the other girls um i really like how this is played as well because it does become a major factor at the conclusion of the film. Oh, yes, yes. It's going somewhere with all of this, these little comp- side conversations about her father, her family, her money, etc. But on the train, they're in the they're in the train car and Lorna is writing in her little travel journal and we just get we just get this really good glimpse at how like just innocent and like I said, just naive Lorna is and she's so you like I said, you just want to hug her. She's so mousy and just oh Beth and Whitney want to go to get a drink. Lorna does not drink, so she stays behind. And in the hallway, this like weird guy bumps into them as they're going to the bar. And he just happens to stand in front of the the car that Lorna's in and just watch her put on her little headphones and write in her journal. I might say almost, and I don't mean this as a criticism, but compared to the other girls, Matarazzo's performance here seems almost like she's kind of Like she's like, I don't know. I don't want to say over the top, but she's playing it a little more um, exaggerated. Um, She is extremely, extremely innocent to almost a comedic uh, extreme. 
and against two girls who are for the most part pretty downplayed but she plays it with such an endearing and like you said wide-eyed genuine authenticity that even though it is a bolder character choice than the other two it doesn't make her stick out in a negative way or any less likable. She's just incredibly awkward, but it works for the character. And when Matarazzo does have several moments to really go to bigger places with it, I mean, across the board, she nails it. She has some moments coming up further into the progression of the film that you're actually kind of blown away as to how into it she can get. Um, but for now, like being first introduced to this character, she's incredibly mousy. She almost comes off as a pinch over the top, but I like that about her. I think it's one of the strong points of the character in the long run. Yeah. And it really, her innocence and her, her likability and just realness, I think, is what contributes to the overall uh, impact of of her scene coming up, her death scene. I think it's one of the things, one of the components that makes it more difficult to watch because you're not used to seeing the innocent, virginal character be dispatched in such an agonizing, prolonged, torturous, gruesome way. You know, if this was the 80s, right? If this was the 80s, the height of the 80s slasher era there's no doubt lorna would be the final girl yeah yeah it's just a it just was a nice twist on that whole final girl concept that the construct that we've become so familiar with that the, the virgin the goody two-shoes girl is going to be the one that doesn't that, that survives that, that musters the strength and the the knowledge to overcome the killer i mean we're talking about lorna here's a character that does a cheers here in a few minutes with all the other girls and she's drinking a goddamn capri sun and they're down in vodka oh my god i mean yeah oh my god. i mean that's what we're talking about here um but i love her i love this character and i oh, it just breaks my heart what happens to her but in the bar, Whitney and uh, Beth are there. And as they're discussing something, the waitress brings over two drinks. And she's like, hey, the, the person over there just bought these for you. Beth looks over and it is Axel. Axel. And Beth is like, what are you doing? And Axel's response is, well, you, you motivated me to take a little trip. Oh my goodness, how flirtatious. And meanwhile, we got Bijou Phillips over there trying to hawk street drugs off some random Italian, just asking him if he uh, if he has party favors. And one, one thing I appreciate about this moment is while Beth reads a bit more uh, even keel and I guess a pinch more conservative than the, the wild and free uh, Bijou Phillips, um, I do like that, like, it doesn't seem like Beth is completely, like, against, like, a little bit of drug play here and there, a little bit of sex here and there. She's definitely the mother of the group, but she's not like completely unwilling to give in to fun. She's just more reserved than Whitney. Um, Whitney is one extreme and Beth is the other, but played in a believable way, I feel. I agree. I think Beth is a little bit more thoughtful and calculating about her choices that she makes because of her financial situation. Yes. I think her financial situation basically is the thing that drives every choice that she makes throughout the film. And that is what caused, yeah, she's not opposed to, you know, partying and drinking and having drugs. She even asks the guy, this Italian guy herself, if he had specific drugs. But I think she 
is more careful and definitely less carefree because she knows her financial situation. She doesn't want to put herself in a situation where that's going to be jeopardized or um, that that's going to be put at stake for her. So she is definitely much more calculated for that specific reason. Um, this is a bra that is, she's not going to get drunk and go sleep with some random guy and end up God knows where, you know, or get, get so drunk and high in, in public that she's going to be hauled off into jail. She's very concerned about, I think her image and again, the financial freedom that she has and how that is projected on her in terms of how she should behave and how, what she needs to do and what she doesn't need to do. Uh, so I do appreciate that with the character, especially uh, paired with such a, um, free spirit such as Whitney who drags her to this Italian's car and in this car he has these two other skeezy friends and these are the skeeziest fucking people I've ever seen in my goddamn life he's charming for like a second like when you first get introduced to him a millisecond yeah a millisecond you're like oh he looks like he's like kind of handsome and then the moment you get into this car he instantly becomes a complete fucking creep uh he grabs Whitney when she at first suggests they go back to their car he's like no you stay like he's really like aggressive and the guys are all obviously like making very crude remarks to the girls. And so the girls are like, fuck this, like, fuck it. Uh, we're going to go, we're going to go back to our car. And the guy, uh, the, the, the main member of the group, the one you, you saw initially in the last car that led them back to the room, he makes a comment saying, I knew that you were stupid cunts. And there's this moment <laughs> Where you have Beth like turn around, she's like, "What the fuck did you just say to me?" And I love that, like, without hesitation, she is not scared off by this. She confronts him. She says, "What the fuck did you say to me?" He says, "I said that you are nothing more than a stupid American cunt," and she starts just losing her shit on him. And it's made clear that she has a little bit of a temper here, but I love that about her. It makes her seem fierce. She seems ferocious. She's not looking to back down. She will also stand up for herself. She's aware of her wealth. She tries to be responsible, but she's not fucking taking shit from anybody. And I love that character trait. She explodes on him and Whitney has to pull her away. And as Whitney's pulling her away, Whitney's like, what are you doing? And Beth's response is, I fucking hate that word. I fucking hate that word. Fucking cunt you, Amir. I hate that word. And it comes into play later on. So I love that. It comes full circle. So they get back to their, their car, their little room on this train, and they find Lorna on the floor, hysterically crying. Because, oh my I god! Know, I mean, <laughs> she's just, she's she's just so her, sad. I mean, like, Heather Monarazzo, bless her. She's giving her there's snot coming out of her nose. Oh, she is. It's disgusting. She's like, he took my iPod, and, and um, Beth goes to console her, and she's like, "Is there a cop here? Is there a cop on the train?" So Whitney says she's going to go get a cop. And when she goes out into the cop, the three fucking assholes are out in the hallways. She goes back into their the car and shuts the door. And immediately there's a pounding on the door, and you're we're assuming it's these three guys who saw her sneak back into the car, but it's not. It's Axel. Axel. Oh my god! Just in the nick of time. Guess what she has? The she has Lorna's iPod. And she's like, did one of you gals lose this? And Lorna's like, oh my God, where'd you find it? And she's like, oh, some guy tried to take my pe- purse and I grabbed him and fought him off and it fell out of his pocket. We forgot to mention the guy, by the way. There's a moment earlier when the girls leave the car that they bump into this extremely unattractive 
Slovakian man. I mean, this is a rough looking face with bad long hair. Like, I don't know where Eli Roth gets these ugly people, but God, I mean, effective, effective to look at. Uh, and then there's this really great little moment when you see him enter the car as well, where like he's out of focus looking through the door and then like they go through a tunnel. So it goes black for a moment. And when the lights come back up, you see him standing right behind Heather Matarazzo. Uh, really cool little shot. I really love that moment. But yeah, this this whole moment plays out perfectly. She's got the iPod instantly winning them over. Uh, Lorna feels this huge sigh of relief and feels comfortable enough to talk to everybody. Uh, and it really kind of gives the girls a moment to all just open up to each other and bring this new member into their group who seems very likable, very warm, very well played in the sense of how just um, chill and comfortable she is. I mean, this actress does a really great job with the character. I get why they are lured in by her. She makes everything seem very uh, just genuine and enticing. Um, and and I think that after seeing the last movie, we have this really unique angle now that we know kind of the process of what's happening. We're watching it with an understanding that these girls do not have. Um, and so to see just how charming she is here, you're like, oh, no, they're fucking falling for it. But, like, I get it. I also get why they make it so easy. Yeah, yeah. She's because she does not come off as intimidating at all. I mean, you know, and, and here they saw that this is a girl that is obviously very well known in the in the village that they were staying in because she has all these connections with people and interactions with people. She was the model. So you're not going to think that this girl is, is, has any sort of negative ulterior motives. And again, she's been nothing but helpful, nothing but kind up until this point, they invite her into the car and they all just have like a kind of a girl's night and they discuss where they're going. Laura, Lorna makes the comment that she just wants to go home. When Axel brings up the uh, fact that she's going to Slovakia, to spend the weekend in the relaxing hot springs. This gets Lorna's attention. Lorna's intrigued and she's like, hot springs, that sounds so relaxing. I would like to go there. And Axel's like, yeah, yeah, you got you gals should come along. F- screw Prague. You know, Slovakia is where it's at. And Beth says, okay, I'm I'm down. And she asks, she asks Axel, well, do you know a good place to stay? And of course, it cuts to them checking into the hostel. Oh, I love some of the cut choices in this movie. There's a lot of hard cuts. They're perfectly timed. This is one of them. And and I, I touched on this a, a bit a moment ago. But, you know, again, we're coming into this now with an understanding that we really didn't have with the first movie. Eli Roth knew he couldn't just tell the same story over there's not a surprise factor or a shock factor that existed within the initial film. It's it's not there anymore. So what he does do is at certain points branch off from this focal trio uh, and allow you as the viewer to kind of go behind the scenes and watch, you know, the exact process from stage one of selecting a new <laughs> a new member at, or, um, selecting a new tenant at the hostel and. They're basically like onboarding into the system where they are bid upon and priced out and treated like a fucking like prized possession. It is so interesting to watch this angle of everything execute uh, from the moment they enter. I think it was one of the best choices he made in the movie. And this whole montage coming up here that it leads up to is is one of my favorite moments. I think it is just entrancing. I can't take my eyes off this whole sequence. 
Yeah, so they check in. The, the desk clerk takes their uh, passports and gives them a flyer for the upcoming Harvest Festival. Whitney says, nope, that looks gay. Until this hot guy comes up and grabs the flyer. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go to this. And she's like, yep, we are definitely going to the Harvest Festival. And they go to their room. And as they're going to the room, um, Beth does notice this cute, you know, blonde couple at the end of the hallway in their room just frolicking on their bed. The desk clerk goes to the back room ominously and starts to make copies of their passport pictures. And this is the scene, the montage I think you're talking about, where all of a sudden we are cutting to all of these different people, not even men, people throughout the world. I mean, that are doing various tasks that we get the golf, the golfer who ends up being Todd, who is one of our main antagonists coming up. He's golfing. He gets a text and he's like all excited about it. There's another guy lounging on the beach with, with his wife. There's a businessman in a meeting. Um, there's all kinds of people. There's a man sitting next to his wife and kids. And we're just getting all these intercuts until we finally realize what, what the text that they're getting are pictures of Lorna, Beth and Whitney with an asking price. And they are bidding on them. And the montage ends with Todd, the golfer, getting the notification that he actually won the bet. He won one of the girls. And he starts jumping up and down on the golf course and then calls his friend Stuart, who is having breakfast with his wife and kids, to tell him, hey, I just did it. We're going to go. Man, this whole sequence is just chilling to me. I mean, the shot of the old man with his grandchild on the merry-go-round behind him especially stands out to me as one of the the most striking aspects. There's a woman who's horseback as well, uh, bidding amidst all the boys, you know, and it's just everyday people, wealthy people, but everyday people going about their days and just casually checking their phones. Oh, God, it's such an interesting sequence to me. Um, And I, I do appreciate also seeing the concierge from the first film kind of coming back into play again. He was creepy in the first one. He's creepier in this one. And you're seeing him go through his spiel, the same spiel he went through with the boys in the first film, talking about this big event coming up that's going to be crazy, sexy, fun, and luring them to this event. Uh, They're really fucking selling it. I would go too, Troy. You and I would be fucking fucked. You and I would be so ready to go to this goddamn Dozinski festival it looks so fucking fun everybody's there in the whole town um and they make it so again so easy to lure these people in but then he goes back and he starts that whole process of entering the girls into the system and it's like ooh man again eli roth really knew the story he wanted to tell here and i think that's very clear because it is because it is very well pieced together yes this film is almost as much about the antagonists as it is the protagonists I mean, it really is. We we spend a lot of time with what comes up primarily as our two antagonists, Stuart and uh, Todd, right? And we we spend a lot of time with them. We get to know their 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 motivations, their feelings, what they're going through as they prepare for this. And I find it very very interesting, you know, to get it from the perspective of the of these the people that are actually paying to kill and not just the the victims, because we really hear and see like some of the warped trains of thought that they have right um so the girls uh, are walking through the streets of slovakia when all of a sudden this gaggle of little kids jump out and these little kids come into play several times throughout the film it's like a little gang of kids that terrorize 
tourists, I guess, because they want a dollar. The one saying dollar, dollar. And Lorna being, you know, who she is, offers them some smints. She's like, here, do you want some smints? And the little bully looking leader of the, the this kid group spits right in her face and take off takes off running like Bitch! beaches. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a fun little moment. These children, God, I want someone to smack them so bad. Like they're just horrible children. These are these kids need to be punished. Um, and they're off doing awful things, be, beating people with sticks. We come to find out they beat people, they trip them and they beat them. Um, but yeah. I think these kids are horribly unlikable, but they serve a good purpose. It really comes together well with them in the end of the movie as well. Again, Eli Roth is really good at tying up loose ends. I think he makes for a lot of satisfying moments in this movie. And even as simple as these kids coming into play multiple times, it's all for a reason. They have a purpose here. Well, a plane lands and Todd and Stuart get out. So they have got on the plane to fly over to Slovakia. This regal woman... Uh, takes them to their hotel. There's a montage of them checking in. Todd asks Stuart, hey, are you excited about this? And Stuart's like, yeah, yeah. And Todd's like, well, you could have fooled me because you look like your dog just died. Please don't tell me that you're having second thoughts. And and Stuart's like, no, 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 I'm just jet lagged. Once I take a nap and take a shower, I will be good. Todd is such a... Um, I hate him. Such a fucking difficult character i was gonna say he's a he's a pill he's really a prick but there's i think a reason that he's played to such an extreme because i mean let's talk about these two guys for a moment these are major aspects of the film roger bart is a phenomenal actor a professionally trained actor and he gives quite a nuanced performance here even moments ago the whole moment of seeing his wife leave him alone uh, as she walks the kids out she doesn't even give him a kiss goodbye as he's on the phone she drives away leaves him to clean up the dining room table um you can tell there's a huge separation in his family uh, he mentions his relationship with his wife multiple times it's clearly very strained it seems that she is the breadwinner perhaps in that scenario um and that he is struggling financially that comes up a lot money is very prominent in this film the idea of wealth and what it can buy you and Stewart simply does not have a lot of it to the point that todd is the one paying for this whole event for them um so he can have someone to experience it with them and todd is the one who right now seems revved up and ready to go everything that comes out of his not out of his mouth is like chock full of machismo and super just dickish he's a total fucking douchebag but there again is a reason for that as well and it does not go the way you would anticipate with his character that's the great thing about it you're right because the way this character is portrayed throughout the film is not what we end up getting with him uh which i find is it's like the two Todd and Todd and Stewart switch personalities at the end of the film now i don't know how i feel about that particularly the change that Stuart has. It, to me, it, it's a little forced, but I think we have to, we'll address that when we get to that point, right? So the festival is in full swing and the girls are having a blast. They are um, looking at all the different merchandise that's for sale. Lorna mentions that one of the swords costs a thousand euros. And Whitney's like, oh, well, that's not a problem for Beth. She could afford several of those. And there's this conversation that emerges where Whitney tells Lorna that Beth has basically as so much money she could buy Slovakia because her mother died and left her all the money and her and actually her dad she gives her dad an allowance because all the money is hers. Now we never find out like what her mom did, how 
how much money we're talking about, but we just know that it has to be like a massive, massive amount of money. Yeah, it is implied that she is irrationally wealthy, um, which I think kind of adds to her cool demeanor quite a lot. The fact that she is so chill and laid back about it, you would never know. I, I really appreciate that she's played in that way. She's never flaunting it. Um, I love that there was that moment earlier where <laughs> where Whitney was like uh, going in to pay for the hotel and she's like, oh, 10 euros, I got it. No, psh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Like she's doing this like big, <laughs> this big thing. It's 10 fucking euros. And, um, and of course, Beth goes to pay for that as well. It's clear she's generous with her friends. But yeah, I mean, they make so many good choices in the way they handle her character. And every little thing said about her makes me like her all the more. So back at the factory or whatever this place is todd is getting his bloodhound tattooed and this becomes a point of conflict because stewart does not want to get this tattoo because because his main explanation is that his wife will notice it and how is he going to explain it to his wife well they tell him very specifically it is part of the contract you have to get this tattoo and he is very apprehensive He's like, I don't know. How am I going to explain this? Todd it becomes very aggressive to him. He's like, we came here to do this. Get your fucking ass in that chair right now. And Stuart obliges. He doesn't really have a choice. They even bring up the moment where he says, um, you were able to explain the gonorrhea that you brought home from Thailand. I'm sure you can explain the tattoo. You know, like it's clear that these guys have a history of Todd kind of uh, dragging Stuart out and forcing him to live live his life uh, the way that Todd sees it should be lived, you know, and Stuart is definitely resistant against that. Um, that's another very interesting angle with Stuart's characters. He seems like he's really fighting against all of this, uh, which does play into that whole sudden shift that we experience at the end of the movie that we will talk a lot about. But yeah, yeah, it, Todd is just so... Um, full of like bro slang and one-liners and they play him so detestable and he does manage to convince him to get the tattoo against his will back at the festival whitney brings all of the girls a drink and makes sure to tell lorna not to worry because it's just a cider but it's really alcohol because <laughs> uh, Lorna's like, oh, I'm going to go say thank you because uh, Whitney says she got it from these little kids. So Lorna's like, I'm going to go take say thank you to them. And, and Beth takes a drink. And she's like, this is the most alcoholic beverage I've ever drinking in my life. In the meantime, Todd and Stuart are now also at this event and they notice uh, Beth. They notice the girls and Todd makes the comment. He's like, see, ma'am, there she is. She's a spitting image. Seeing... Bijou Phillips' body role to traditional Slovakian music is a beautiful vision to me. <laughs> How she's like popping her ass on the on this like dance floor, but all the people are dancing like traditional like polka esque style dancing, and she's out there like popping it. It's so cute. It's fun. The guys are watching, which is extremely creepy. It's it's a really um, interesting angle to bring in the fact that they're aware of who their prey is, and they're always watching from a distance. You did see that a bit a pinch in the earlier film um the whole train sequence you know where they had the introduction with the character that ended up being the one villain uh in the first movie they encounter him a few times and then he comes back into play well here they're watching the girls with a complete knowledge that these are the people that we will be killing and we want to get a feel for who they are and how they operate i can't believe this i would never want to kill anybody in general but if it was something i wouldn't want to know anything about who they were and the lives they led and how they interacted. Like, oh, it's such a dark angle to throw in there. 
It's really dark, particularly how much Todd seems to be getting off on it. You know, he, the Todd, this Todd character is just so despicable, so detestable. And, you know, he is the one that seems to be taking all the joy in this entire experience. Whereas Stuart, I think it's, again, we, as we talk, we'll talk about, he's more like, I cannot believe I'm doing this. You know, this is not me. But Lorna is watching, Lorna watches on as Whitney is dancing. She's now dancing with this guy that was at the hotel with them. And this heavier gentleman comes up to her and offers his hand to her to dance. And she's, she's just thrilled. She's like, are you talking to me? And she gets up and she goes dances and dances with this gentleman. We now get this bucked tooth gentleman who comes and asks Beth to dance. This guy's teeth. It's a lot of teeth, but they make sure you see those teeth because later on you see those teeth chipped for a reason. Mm -hmm. Oh, prominent. These teeth are prominent. Big part of the conversation here. (laughs) Well, she declines several times. He asks her several times and she declines. And he finally looks at her and he says, I could have helped you. And she's like, what did you say? And he just walks away. Right away, the hostile clerk notices this and comes up and grills Beth about, what did he say? She's like, oh, he, nothing. He just w- wanted to dance. And he's like, he won't bother you anymore. Oh, he wasn't bothering me. Like the way she says that to him, completely kind of unaware. But he's so creepy in this moment. He's such a minor moment of both films, the concierge. But he's played with this air of just... um. Oh, I don't know, like almost like a smugness, like he's completely aware of the fact that this girl's going to be killed soon and he's kind of getting off on it. Ugh, it's so weird. It's weird. I really like his character a lot. I wish we saw a little more of him, to be honest, because he is one of the few characters that connects both movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he kind of just disappears in this one. He does offer her a drink and she does take it. But as soon as he walks away, she's smart and dumps it out. She happens to dump it out right on Stuart's pant leg as he's walking by and this then allows him the moment to have some conversation oh it's where, awkward <laughs> yeah where she offers to buy him a drink and he's like no 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 she's like i insist i insist so she runs to get him a drink and while she's buying him a drink lorna comes up excited because the guy that she met named roman wants to take her on a boat i love this maternal moment where she's kind of like telling her like no no like i don't want you going anywhere please promise me promise me you're not going to go anywhere like i do appreciate that beth is that character looking out for her friends well and lorna's like why why don't you want me to go you don't fancy him because he's not whitney or beth approved looks wise and beth's like no 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 that's not it at all i just think we should stick together we're in a foreign land we don't know anybody so just let's stick together please promise me that you're not going to go on the boat with him and Lorna's response is just to like, give a little laugh, like this little schoolgirl. It's going to be fine. Like, it's going to be <laughs> fine. And she uh, she walks away. And that's that. And Beth takes the drinks back to Stuart. And they actually make some small talk. And he tells her, geez, I must be taking you away from all these hot Slovakian guys. Why do you want to talk to an ugly American like me? And her response is, well, you're not that ugly. Oh, <laughs> uh, the fact that she's so willing to just be outwardly nice to this guy, you know, get him another drink, make small talk with him. She's very pleasant with him. Um, It's it's a very awkward moment for you as the viewer, knowing what you know, knowing that he has to go through this conversation. He's basically, he's watching the girl he's going to be murdering later. Like he is fully aware of what is going to be taking place. And he's having to kind of, you know, 
play it off, play it cool. And so it does make you kind of ugh, makes your skin crawl thinking about it because she's just fully unaware and she's being nothing but nice to the guy. Well, she does notice that he's carrying around this large pager. This like it looks like a restaurant pager, and she's like, "Hey, is your table is your table going to be ready soon?" He's like, "No, no, that's a long story." She's like, "Yeah, okay. Well, I'll have to hear about it another time because I have to get going." And as she's leaving, he says, "Okay, I'll see you later, Beth." And she turns around. She's like, "How did you know my name?" He's like, "Oh no, I heard your friend say it." And you can tell she's like, uh, I don't know about that. But she's like, okay, have a good night. And she walks around looking for Lorna. And she sees that Lorna is now on the boat floating down the river with this fucking guy. And she goes chasing, screaming for Lorna. And all Lorna can say as she's sailing farther and farther away is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All throughout this whole moment with the festival, there's lots of great uh, usage of the environment around them. Like you've got tons of shots of... Uh, individuals in creature costumes and masks. There's this one moment, uh, kind of prominent moment, where uh, Lorna sees like this like goat demon on a boat waving at her, and she waves back to it. It's very ominous, um, and it, it adds a really great atmosphere to the setting. It does make it feel very like just uneasy and and again foreboding. There's so many foreboding elements to this film. Little moments like what just happened here with with Roger Bart disclosing that he knows her name. Um, for it's a, it's a great foreshadowing uh, to what's to come. And it, and if she would have gone maybe with her instinct, because you see her for a moment question it, but then she plays it off and she just goes ahead and she leaves. Like if she would have just looked into it a little bit more, like what's about to happen, she could have avoided a lot of shit, you know? So I, I don't know. I love the way he plays this little moment between the two of them. Cause I do think it's extremely uncomfortable, but as it should be. And it's a great little moment to see them uh, interact like this before what they experience together later. Yeah. So, cause it's, it's something you did not get from the first film and it's something you don't even get from the third film. You don't see the, the characters interacting at all like this with their killer. And it, it just adds that whole m- another level of like morbidness to the whole thing. Right. Who, who you have to think about it. Who is a human being? Could you imagine like sitting there talking and having a cordial conversation with somebody that, you know, your whole intent in even being in this location where you're at is to brutally murder this person three or four hours later it's just it's just morbid and i think it does allow um the character of stewart to have some humanity because there are moments where you can tell he definitely feels bad for what his his intentions are but anyways roman and lord are sailing in this boat and he takes her ashore and has her get out and as she gets out there's this moment where you you know he grabs this giant like metal stake and the music gets really ominous and you think he's going to do something. And even Lorna's like, Roman, what are you doing? And he just pounds a stake into the rope so the boat doesn't float away. And then she, he tells her, come here, come here, come close to me. So she does. And he tells her to close her eyes. And immediately this fucking bag is thrown over her head by two guys. And she is manhandled. Roman actually throws her into the water. And as she's trying to climb out, takes this big old fucking two by four and beats her in the back with it, unconscious. It is so abrupt. Like they really don't even take much time. Like the moment she turns around and closes her eyes, a bag goes over her head and she's helpless. You know, there's not like some big long pursuit here. Um, they've got her down and out pretty quick. And, and it's it's so unfortunate 
to see her character go down so helpless without any potential of defending herself whatsoever. She never stood a chance, the poor thing. Like, let's be real. She never fucking stood a chance. No, she did not. And, you know, you know, she, she only would have listened to Beth. But back at the the festival, Whitney is drunk as fuck. And she's leaving with her new boy, this new boy toy of hers named Marislav, who is the guy that has been prominent. Her eye has been on him since she saw him at the hotel take the brochure. Beth is worried about Lorna. And Axel's like, you know what? I'll stay here and wait for Lorna. You go back with her because Beth is like, there's no way I can let her go with this guy, but I need to stay here with Lorna. XL offers to stay and wait for Lorna. So Beth thanks her and they go back to the hostel. And Beth does at this moment prevent Whitney from going into uh, Miroslav's room and fucking him. Oh yeah, there's this great real uh, intense moment here where he is very much given kind of a red herring vibe for a moment. I love that little that little like dash of is he or isn't he in on it? Was he going to be one of the people to abduct them? Because really, at this point, you don't trust a single person in this fucking town. I mean, I trust literally nobody from the broad sitting in the sitting room to the children fucking beating people with sticks to just the random party goers in the street outside. It's all so ominous. I wouldn't trust a single person. God, no. Yeah. I love the fact that they are able to make almost everyone that these girls come in contact with feel like a red herring or, or feel like they could be involved. But yeah, because Miroslav's intent here is really to get her into a room. He is trying hard. And luckily, Beth is able to get Whitney to go with her. And Whitney's even says, she's like, oh my God, I wanted to fuck that guy. And Beth says, I know you did, but you know, we're, we're, we got it taken care of. Uh, and then we cut to Stuart and Todd jogging that next morning. And Todd is given like this monologue about the first time you have sex with somebody. Do you remember like the first time you knew someone had sex in, in, in high school? It changes you. And that's how it's going to be for us in just a few short hours. Because when you murder somebody, that changes you. And people are going to fucking fear you. And he looks at Stuart and he's like, your fucking wife, she's going to fucking fear you. And then he just like, he's like, Stuart, are you really into this? Because I'm fucking, I'm fucking tired of talking about it. We're going to do it. I'm so fucking tired of talking about it. And then they get into this like weird spa with some naked women. I mean, they're just, they're just having the time of their lives up until the, the time that they're going to murder these innocent women. I mean, it is really just like so lavish. They are making every penny count with this place. They're really just going hog wild with the prostitutes, the women swimming in that little pool. Um, there was one little moment earlier, and I don't, I, I may have missed it if you mentioned it. I just want to touch on it because I thought it was pretty significant. Uh, when you saw Beth helping uh, Whitney back to the room and she looks over and she sees the next hostel down where you saw that couple earlier you see two men in leather like really aggressively bagging up possessions and they look over and like slam the door um another really great little bit of foreshadowing again we as the viewers we know exactly what's happening beth is kind of picking up on certain things but they're not connecting yet and you're just like oh girl no like please make the right choices uh, but i love those little moments well, the girls are also having themselves a lavish time because they are at the hot springs and Beth is concerned about Lorna when Whitney makes the comment that, oh, isn't it funny that Lorna's the only one to get some last night? And Miroslav's like, oh, I tried. Beth says, no, I'm really worried about her. She's, I don't know. She's, she, do you think she's still asleep or what? And Whitney's like, well, I bet you she's in a cum coma. <laughs> 
And Axel's like, yes, she's enjoying her company of a man, and she's probably making him breakfast as we speak. Well, at least she'll have something to write about in her journal. Hard cut. Hard cut to Lorna hung upside down naked. Naked and gagged, her little face pouting in the frame upside down as it slowly rotates uh, to reveal that she is, in fact, um, being hung like a piece of meat. And it is absolutely horrifying. Yes, they 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 chain they pull the chain and, and position her above this like large white bathtub. And Roman comes in and he proceeds to take a blowtorch and light the blowtorch and you think, oh shit. But all he does is light all these candles that are around this bathtub. And then he proceeds to, before he exits the room, he goes and kisses her on the forehead. And then this woman comes in disrobes we see her we get disrobed and she gets in the tub and poor Lorna is strung above this woman and this woman takes this scythe that is conveniently in the tub with her and starts to like drag the blade of the scythe along Lorna's skin and you can hear it like snagging her skin and it's so fucking cringeworthy you can hear so much of it troy you can hear like every little sound the the clanking of the chains lorna's sobs i mean like heather Matarazzo in this scene and i'm sure it's because she's fucking hung upside down and you can tell she really fucking is because her little boobies are hanging upside down her face is blood red the the veins in her neck are popping out i'm sure she was very believably uncomfortable in this moment and that does translate here um but holy fuck this really is one of the most difficult scenes to watch uh i would say in the horror genre in general because of how long it's dragged out and they make every single frame count every sound effect every footstep uh the the removal of the robe is done in such a dramatic fashion as this this mature woman lays herself down in this tile tub and like it's pretty quick you know what's about to happen i think their choice to go here and have this this older woman come into play and do something very different than anything else we've seen from the series thus far everything has always been so um just like you know men in rubber caps brutally murdering people or eating them or whatever this is erotic this is sensual you know she's they're both fully nude um but it's it's a completely different approach than we've seen up to this point it definitely is torture porn in every sense of the word but it's some of the most beautifully executed torture porn i've seen to date and for that i think it is quite breathtaking and a striking sequence to watch no matter how uncomfortable it is It is definitely one of the most visceral sequences from a horror film that I think I've seen. And with that being said, you're right. It's actually a very beautiful. And I know that sounds so, so odd to say, but this, the scene, the way it's just thrown, the way it's edited together, everything, it just, it's a stunning scene to watch. And it's whether you're affected by it or not. I mean, I think we can all agree that, you know, you have to give major props to Heather Matarazzo for enduring this because I often think about when I'm watching the scene, like how 
long did they have her hung upside down and how long did it take to to actually film this how many how many days did they have to do this for because you know obviously they had to be concerned about her comfort being hung upside down and it's really her it's not a this isn't a, there's not one moment in this scene where you can where this is a dummy it's her the entire time uh and I mean, yes, just the the whole orgasmic element, the sensual element of this film is this woman starts to hack away at Heather Matarazzo's back with this large sickle and just revel in, in orgasm almost as the blood is flowing down on her. She's covered in it and she's just just literally grabbing the blood and wiping it all over her face and her body. And she's in ecstasy. And in the meantime, poor Lorna, Heather Matarazzo is just crying, sobbing, crying for her mother. I think that's the line that gets me is like when she's like, mom, mom, I'm like, no, come on, please. Because I, Lorna is like the, such the innocent character. And like for her to meet this demise, it makes sense because I know they're drawing the parallel between this woman and like, Lady Bathory, that whole thing. Remember bathing in the blood of virgins. It's obviously Lorna is the virgin of the group, so it's obvious that this is the the parallel that they're drawing. I get it, but goddamn, you know, I I I like I said in our last episode, like I don't, I love horror films, but like I don't want to watch someone suffer or be tortured over a prolonged period of time. It doesn't bring me like any entertainment factor like i don't get entertained by it i'm like i'm not entertained by this but watching it this time around i'm gonna say because i knew it was coming it wasn't i did not have the the reaction i did the first time i was more in tune with like the filmmaking part of it right i'm gonna forget about the what's what i'm watching because what i'm watching is horrifying I'm going to look at the technical, the filmmaking aspect of this, this whole set piece, because it's an amazing set piece and it is really, really great, impactful filmmaking, everything. Like you mentioned, the sound effect, the editing, the acting, the, the, the blood just dripping everywhere. I mean, there's so much going on in this scene that if you look at it from a, a filmmaker perspective, I think you can get a whole new level of appreciation for what was accomplished here. Yeah. Matarazzo, I think, is so horrifyingly believable in this moment. And again, I'm sure a lot of it stems from the, from her discomfort because it is evident uh, as uncomfortable as that would be to be hung upside down like this. Gagged as well. Keep in mind, I mean, and at one point the woman does remove the gag so she can hear the screams. And I will say that this this sequence here where she is hacked to death and eventually her throat is slit in violent fashion spewing blood all over the woman and you know putting out candles i mean it is violent i I will say this has to be what i would imagine the closest to watching a human bleed out on camera in real time would be like you literally hear like her cries and her screams like building and building and building and then they slow down they slow down as as she's just gushing blood everywhere she's becoming weaker and weaker until finally her throat is slit it is so uh, uncomfortably real and um it it does make me uncomfortable watching the scene it makes me you know squeamish and cringe but like in the ways i guess i would want to be made uncomfortable while watching a horror movie and while it is extremely graphic again the fact that they chose to have a woman be the one executing this um, he's always been so exploitive with women in his movies, and he certainly is here too. But he did choose to make it so that this girl meets her fate, not at the, at the hand of some man who is, you know, treating a woman like a piece of meat, but another woman, a fellow woman. And 
You know, you brought up Elizabeth Bathory, whom, you know, I, I know quite a lot about as well. And I really find her story to be quite disgusting and fascinating. You know, I mean, the the volume of girls apparently who died at her hands for her need to bathe in their goddamn blood. I mean, that's so fucking sick. And that's a woman. So I think the fact that he opted to play that angle was, again, wise um, on Roth's behalf, because he's often looked at as, you know, as really um, treating his female characters as really uh, just secondary or uh, just not as likable. And the men always tend to be the ones that are put in moments of favor, even when it comes down to the villains. In this case, that woman knew exactly what she was doing bathing in that girl's blood. And while she may be nude, she's also in a place of like extreme power when doing it. And it just felt like a bold choice for him and, and completely like unexpected. At the time when I saw this, I remember thinking, wow, like this is this is really him trying something extremely different and it is paying off. It's still gory as all fuck, but God, man, I mean, I would say it's one of his finest directorial bits out of all the scenes he's filmed all the sequences i think it stands out as one of his finest moments as a director for sure and i think though the one thing that cements just the impact of the film is i think you hit the nail on the head is it's a woman that is actually doing this and a woman that's actually getting sexual satisfaction out of it uh, it just adds a whole new layer to what is being projected on screen and it's just yeah it's horrifying to watch again this viewing like i i was not as affected as i was the first time i saw it because I, I i've always said that this the scene the first time i saw it was is definitely one of the most impactful scenes i've ever seen in a film um but yeah then we we cut back to the spa beth is in the spa she is watching whitney and miroslav frolic and make out in the like the changing room when axel comes up behind her and very sensually gives her a kiss on the shoulder and then I'm I'm kind of confused as far as what happens here because does she like does the time does she like doze off or something because all of a sudden she like wakes like lifts her head back up and everyone's gone? I very much think that's what happened here. I think that what it is is that Axel sensually comes over and massages her. I think she's like relax, relax. And I think that she falls asleep. And it is kind of a, of a, of an unexpected cut, unexpected transition. But when you think of something like that, like just passing out in a fucking salt bath, like goddamn, these spas look so fucking, so fucking good. Oh, Troy, you and me at these spas, lounging, steam, mist coming off the water, just like it's it's beautiful. Now I know people get fucking killed at these things, but um, you know, up to this point she's had no idea. But when she wakes up immediately. There is, um, well, first of all, there's no one fucking there. I mean, there's literally nobody else around her. It almost seems to me to wonder if they, you know, bring people here specifically to capture them. It's it's very uh, confusing just how much time has actually gone by. I will say that. I don't know how it went from a, a full spa to being empty. It's kind of a bold choice, but artistically it works because it suddenly feels stark and isolated and as she puts her robe on and starts wandering the halls of the spa it, it makes it for a really great momentary set piece i think it's striking to look at oh yeah this spa is gorgeous but as she's walking around and, and looking for whitney and, and xl she comes into the locker room and she notices that their locker block has been broken and the locker has been broken into so she uh goes 
um, outside. And all of a sudden, as she's outside, several men just start appearing from all these different angles to come at her. And she wastes all the time. She basically hikes it up the, the, the route to the roof. She climbs up the rocks to get to the roof uh, and then slides down the other side and takes off running. And she runs into the road and the car stops a car that's coming towards her. And who's driving the car? That big buck tooth dude. That is now all beat up. He's so good at connecting moments together. And this character, though only having these two moments and nothing more, serves a really great purpose. Because when she sees him, you know, half of his one tooth is now fucking missing. Uh, His face is, yeah, all beat up. And if you look in the back of his truck, all of his possessions are there. Like, he's being forced to, like, flee town because of his being just briefly almost giving away to her some more details about what was about to happen. Um, I love this little moment here. Roth is so good at just setting up foreshadowing. And I just love this little, little like tie back to this character showing just how fucked up he is, how scared he is. And he refuses to help her. He drives away. We get this great little chase sequence of her barefoot in this robe running through the woods until she's eventually tripped on a trip line. And those fucking, those goddamn children got their back. Oh, these little bastards. Yeah. They trip her on a trip wire and they immediately start beating her with sticks like giant sticks are beating the shit out of her uh before axel and this guy that we've seen previously he's the guy that the the backpacks in's head was delivered to earlier in the film and we found out his name his name is sasha axel and sasha show up and he he sasha shoots his gun into the air and axel is able to retrieve beth and take her back to the car and there's this like prolonged moment where this man is like points the gun directly at every kid's head and then what I assume he says is he like makes them pick one that they're going to, that he's going to kill. And they like push this one poor little boy into the, to his feet and the little boys on the ground. And this Sasha guy literally shoots this child and kills him. This moment where the children literally have to decide to sacrifice one of their own after, in my opinion, it's because they quote unquote, like damaged Beth, because they beat up on Beth, who was, you know, obviously someone who's going to have to look her her best in order to be presented to the man who's going to kill her. Um, And so because of that, like, they're forced to, like, sacrifice one of their own. And they do. They select one. And it's like this very long, drawn out moment. And Sasha, we really don't get a lot with him. So the fact that he's given this really big, drawn out sequence where he shoots a child and you don't see the actual bullet go through the head, but you do see the body afterwards bleeding. Uh, with his back to the camera, and it is rather shocking. I mean, like, okay, Eli Roth, I don't know why we needed to shoot a child in this one. Goddamn. I mean, I don't know if it was necessary, but really, it was. it's effective. I can't deny it's effective. If any child deserves to be shot, it's one of the kids from this fucking group, because these are holy terrors. Horrible I mean, children. They're, be- they're beating people. They're tripping them with tripwires. They're yeah. spitting on them. I was fine with the child dying. Like, let's be clear. These kids are horrible. But, like, it's rare that I think you see movies go there. So when it does happen, that needs to be acknowledged. Like, a child is shot in this film. That definitely happens. That's pretty taboo. You don't get that very often. So Eli Roth, I mean, likes to push boundaries. Yeah, well, Beth is taken back to this luxurious mansion. And um, Beth just kind of wondering what the hell's going on. She, so Beth asks, are you and Sasha a couple? And Axel's like, no, no, he's old enough to be my dad. And Beth's like, oh, okay, then what does he do? And all she says is he does auctions. 
as they walk up that fucking staircase with that massive oil painting of XL, which like yeah. get me get me one of those of myself. Like, oh uh, my goodness, how do I procure one of those to hang in my sensible living room? Um, this place is massive. It is filled brimming with images and statues of bloodhounds like you know again as the viewer having seen the original film you know all the warning signs to look for still beth trusting trusting of excels trusting of sasha thinking they're trying to help her it it makes for axel to seem just like such a horrible person because she's still being so kind and genuine towards or seemingly genuine towards Beth, taking care of her, putting makeup on her. All of these are things that a friend would do, you know? And she's just playing this in such a kindly way. For her to turn the way she does coming up here, I mean, what a horrible fucking woman this woman is. This woman is awful. How you can do this. How these people, all of these people though, every one of, every one of the people that are involved in this hunting group or whatever are awful, awful people. Like even like look at Roman, like that little thing when he kissed Lord on the forehead before leaving her in that room hung upside down. You just like, oh, you're a fucking awful person. Everyone is awful. But I guess I mean, if if this is what you're going to be involved in, I guess you're 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 going to be right. I mean, we can't really be surprised. But God damn, this is like there's something about seeing a movie where people within the film have this ability to treat other humans as though they are not. A complete lack of humanity. You know, at least with movies like Scream and so forth, all of the classic slashers, most of them are vengeance tales. There's a motivation behind the who, what, and the why. This all comes from a complete area of selfishness. I mean, of morbid curiosity. It's the people who are interested with death to the extent that they want to actually be able to execute it for themselves. It's completely selfish and nothing more, which makes for these villains, as you get to know them and see more of them, I mean, you just see just how awful humanity really can be sometimes with no reason other than because it can be. And it does make you want to see certain characters within within this film receive a certain kind of comeuppance. I mean, there are multiple characters in this movie that I long to see brutally, brutally uh, given their just desserts. And I will say this film does deliver in that sense as well. Well, yeah, because now we get kicked into high gear in terms of what's going to ultimately what was ultimately in store for these girls because Whitney, we cut to her being taken out of a cage. She's grabbed out of a cage and she's put in a room where some weird man comes in to make her pretty for her client. That's a, that's a woman, isn't it? I believe that is an old homely woman. My friend. I thought, oh, are you sure? I make you pretty. I mean, if it could go either way, honestly, <laughs> this this individual, um, they're rough to look at. <laughs> I'll say that. I don't know what some it is. rough looking teeth. Like no offense to people with a big space, <laughs> giant angels parting. I mean, like Madonna would be proud with this one. Who? But uh, yeah, so she's trying to make Whitney all pretty. And of course, Whitney is just screaming like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And there is this moment where the this man woman jangles the key in front of Whitney to calm her down. Right. And then Whitney notices this and Whitney's still like hysterical, hysterical. But she does something really smart because when this person gets close to her, she fucking goes in and bites his fucking nose off. God love her. I mean, I will say that it was very stupid 
of that person to say, we paint the nails now and then, and then un- like uh, free her hand. I don't think that was a wise call. This girl is panicking. She's clearly hyperventilating. I think they were trying to comfort her to be like, oh, look, if I, if I free your wrist, I'm going to take care of you. Oh, see, you could trust me. But without hesitation, without hesitation, Whitney chomps this fucker's nose off and it's like a it is a chunk another great effect we've yet to really acknowledge just how good some of these gore effects have been so far but when you see shit in this movie i mean as to be expected with eli roth but some of these moments of gore are just absolutely mind-blowing and this this moment is one of them i mean you see up this person's nose yeah. Oh, yeah. We forgot. Even like uh, Heather Matarazzi's scene, her back, when we actually see the damage that's been inflicted in the back and like literally chunks of skin are just hanging there in shreds. It's disgusting. But yeah, uh, Whitney's able to grab the key from this person and unlock her, hand, her other hand and gets out and actually runs. But as she's running down this hallway, the guards who are watching on video see this and they start to like get a kick out of the fact that they can push buttons and make the the door shut on her so she can't get out of the hallway and she's becomes trapped and then all these this, this horde of dogs these guard dogs that the the guards have are unleashed on her and she's basically back to being helpless it's horrific i mean this whole moment where she gets trapped in this little cage and they have the dogs just like barely inches away from her uh, as they just laugh at her and mock her i mean these again these people are treated uh, as though they are not human and they are nothing more than objects for the rest of their this time until they're killed. It's really, really difficult to watch at times. Um, in the mansion, Axel has has you know put Beth in some nice clothes and makeup, and there is this moment where she notices a picture of Axel on, a, on her um, mantle, and it's the guy from earlier in the film that stole Heather Matarazzo's iPod. And it's also beside an image of her uh, between uh, Natalia and Svetlana, who are the two girls from the original film. Another little great Easter egg to look for in this movie. I love that little moment. XL suggests that Beth lay down and take a nap. So she gets in bed and XL goes downstairs. But Beth gets up to kind of look more in detail at the picture. And she looks out the window and notices that there are these guys that are coming in the house, like a whole slew of them. So she goes out into the hallway and looks downstairs and sees all these guys coming in and coming up the stairs. And there's this moment where XL looks at her and sees her and just gives her this like smirk. And you're like, uh, you're like, Ye. the shrug. Oh, you fucking bitch. You fucking bitch. And again, Beth is a character who, when aware that there is danger, immediately attempts to spring into action. I mean, you saw this before in the, in the, the saunas when she, without hesitation, scaled a wall and climbed down to the other side. Now she locks herself in the room. She's trying to figure out which way to get out. And as she looks around, she notices this doorway within the, it's in the closet, correct? It's like within the closet. It's in the closet. And she pushes into it and it reveals a secret room. And, and this little moment here, I have to say is one of the best, um, bits of reconnective tissue towards the original film and what happened with Paxton. The fact that when she opens this door, you get this like return to Oz like hallway of fucking heads of people whom that the Sasha has had brought back to him. At the very end of it, it is revealed that Paxton's head 
is like proudly on display. And so this is this last moment we get with Paxton to see exactly what his fate was ahead on the display of this guy's fucking mount. I mean, how like, fuck you is that to Paxton uh, after everything he went through in that first movie? Um, and, and of course she's quickly grabbed right after that. But I mean, yeah, I think bringing it back from that dream sequence into what is this, that great reveal with the cat licking the wound as kind of overloaded as it feels uh, for this moment alone, having this kind of shocking reveal before she's grabbed, I think is also great storytelling. Uh, and again, like I said, great connective tissue. So I really, I have come to enjoy the opening simply for what I know is in store from that moment. Oh yeah. It's a really cool scene. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned return to Oz. It's the first thing I thought of as well, uh, which we'd cover that on our Patreon. Oh, a reason to join it. Yeah, right? So Todd is getting blown by some hooker when he gets a page. Page means that he's ready. He's up. So him and Stuart get into the car to head to the factory. Stuart asks him bluntly, do you know what you're going to do in there? And all Todd says is, you don't even want to know, man. You don't even want to know. And then there is this very like just depressing I don't even know what the word would be just montage while this very somber Italian music is playing of the two of them getting into their kill gear. Oh, it's very bleak. It's bleak, bleak. That's yeah. Because they're so like kind of casual about it. You see at one point, um, there's like a, a pair of headphones that someone would wear if they're shooting a gun. Obviously, if someone wants to shoot someone and kill them, and you see um, Stuart like put them on and pretend he's like an like an airport. Um, the people that like guide the airplanes with the lights, you know, like you know what I'm talking about, who are flashing those things around, um, kind of like just playing it off like some kind of a joke. And the guys are treating it so like just like lax, like light and comedic it's treated like it's nothing but there's this very somber track played over it's completely silent except for the music and the song is just like this like mournful i'm assuming slovakian piece of this woman's voice against a very stark instrumental and watching this whole process again knowing what you know having gone through the journey of the first movie seeing it kind of from the perspective of somebody who's going to be participating in it willingly it's um it's very morbid it's very dehumanizing to the other people involved well i like it that it ends with like a hard cut of them two just standing next to each other side by side looking down the hallway as they're getting ready to go to their kill room and we cut into the Stuart going into his i'm going to just call them kill rooms that's what they are there's tons of tools spread out and at the end of the room is beth tied to a chair with a hood over her head And he goes up to her and he pulls the hood off of her. And, you know, she is understandably like frantic, freaked out. What she's like, what are you doing? And he tells her to be quiet or they'll kill them both. The fact that she is dressed like his wife is such a just um, disgusting little detail, whether he requested it or Todd did for him on, on his behalf. How sick, like how sick is that? Uh, like down to the suit. Cause you did see that moment earlier when she left with the kids wearing basically the exact same suit. Well, I think we got to acknowledge the fact that Stuart's Stuart's motivation to kill is he wants to kill somebody that looks like his wife. Right. And that's his whole thing. He obviously is stuck in a horrible marriage and his fantasy then is to kill his wife, but he can't actually kill his wife obviously because 99% of the time, if a husband kills a wife, he's going to be caught. So this is his opportunity to live the fantasy that 
that he has of killing his wife because he hates her so much out. So Beth actually has a very strong resemblance to his wife. And then, yeah, the fact that they're throwing her in her, the wife's clothes that she was wearing when we saw her, it's, it's all very fucking disturbing and morbid. And I mean, it just gives us some insight into how fucked some people can be. And the fact that that's something that he, as a character whom we've been following up to this point, the fact that this is something that he is seeking or wanting to dream out or, you know, live out for his own personal pleasure. Up to this point, he's been so resistant towards it. I'm so curious as to like what brought these two specific men to this this point in their lives, got them here. Um, the, the dialogue that must have gone on between them, the conversation, Todd pitching this to Stuart. Um, because, you know, immediately it's played as though Stuart is in no way, shape, or form going to be participating in this. He realizes right off the bat that this is not for him, or so it seems. He starts to try to talk calmly to Beth to comfort her, and she's just flipping her shit, understandably so. Yeah, and he tells her, I mean, she's, he's being very blunt with her. She's like, what, 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 are we, what is this place? And he says, this is a place where people come to kill people. And then we cut to Whitney tied in her chair and she's in like this pink i don't know what do you want to call it like burlesque type outfit like nighty and todd is there and he's like he takes a circular saw and starts to come towards him. he's like oh you little fucking skank i bet you're used to getting everything out of every situation with that face of your you fucking little whore and as he gets close to her the uh circular saw comes unplugged from the wall and she is just tied to this chair screaming her fucking head off Back with Beth, Stuart actually unties her and she tells him, listen, you're not a killer. You know, this is, you don't, you don't have to do this. We're going to, we can get out of here. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not that guy. And he keeps saying it to himself. I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. And she's trying to get out and she gets to the door and she's like, turns around to ask him about the code. And all of a sudden he punches her in the face and knocks her out. Uh... What is with this like drastic shift in character with this Stewart guy who thought the whole film has been the one that we we as the audience know does not want to go through with this he even there's the moment he unties her and is like hey I'm gonna we're gonna get out of here don't worry and then all of a sudden he decides oh you know what I am gonna do this after all well there's this whole little very very subtle um like kind of audio flare that's played as after he uh, removes the gag and she's you know, reacting and understandably upset. And at first she's like, are they going to kill us? Oh my God, are you going to kill me? But she starts like kind of yelling at him. You notice there's moments where he's kind of like struggling to get his words. And you hear this kind of little audio flare come up that almost is implying like what I think to be like the kind of building frustration, tension, upset, and kind of like he's on the, the verge of kind of snapping at this point. And it's just kind of building and swelling until he realizes, holy fuck, I do want to do this. Like, I'm so sick of being bossed around by a woman, you know, put into my place. It's so, uh, my masculinity is so challenged, apparently. It, but it is so sudden and out of nowhere. It is not in any way along the lines of how he has been portrayed up to this point. It is a sudden 180 degree shift. Well, like I said, these moments is, is when the, the, the basically the personality traits that we've known from Stuart and Todd throughout the whole film are all, are all, are, are all of a sudden switched. Uh, and I did kind of maybe got get put that together that maybe like her, you know, 
I don't want to say nagging at him because she's not nagging. She's just asking all these questions of him, like bombarding him with all these questions. And I was thinking, okay, well, is this reminding him of like being home with his wife and how, how she nags him and questions everything he does. And now it's getting in his mind. Like, wow. Yeah. This bitch has it coming because he's starting to really see her as his wife. But to me, it was just a little too jarring of a character shift to, to really buy. And I think this is, Maybe the point where the movie, even though I love what happens and everything, I'm like, uh, okay, kind of, kind of lost me as like a cohesive story. But I, I go along with it. I play along with it. I can fill in, like I said, I can infer that maybe the nag, her questioning him, made him think of his wife. Blah blah blah. Okay, whatever. We're there. He punches her, knocks her out, and we do cut to Todd still terrorizing poor Whitney with this circular saw. And he is just laughing because she is fucking freaked out as I would. I don't want somebody coming at me with a goddamn circular saw. We can see the camera showing that the, the cord is getting ready to come unplugged. And he like turns around real quick to see if it's going to come unplugged. And he accidentally gets too close to her and the, her hair gets caught in the saw and pulls it to her face and like rips this huge chunk of hair and skin off of her face. And Oh my, it's just blood is gushing out of her head. Uh, and her scalp and her hair are stuck in the circular saw. Oh my god. It is and she's just like gurgling and blood. You can see this blood is just streaming out of him. It's so disgusting. You know this had to be painful as fuck. She makes this noise where it's like ah, 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 ah. like she's like gagging up the ball gag's still in her mouth, and she's like like I think like it's basically like caused some brain damage. This thing is like sawed into her skull a bit and she is like bleeding out. She's like, it's a trauma. I mean, this girl is going to die very soon. He is immediately like disgusted by what he's done. And I find it so interesting that, and and, and, uh, interesting and also very well handled specifically for Todd. The fact that up to this point, I completely believe that this guy has been so worried about how he presents himself, how masculine he presents himself, dick size contest, everything that he says, everything that he does, he's always trying to be dominant towards Stuart. Meanwhile, Stuart is the one who is never in control, never in charge, feels so meek, uh, so, uh, I mean, honestly, poor. I mean, you've, you've learned that Todd is paying for all of this, but when it comes down to it, Todd really does not have the balls to go through with it and realizes that he is not capable of doing this. I do think, at least in the course of Todd, this is a great character shift um, because I believe it. I believe this character would be all about talking up the big game, but when it comes down to actually executing it, there's no fucking way this guy has the cojones to actually go through with oh, it. Oh, no. I- no, I totally, I actually, I agree with you. I actually buy this shift in Todd way more than I buy the shift in Stuart because we all know guys like Todd that are talk. They're all talk. They'll talk about kicking someone's ass. They'll talk about getting all the put. And when it comes right down to it, they're, they don't do any of it. They're, they're all fucking talk. It's all for show. And this is definitely this Todd guy. Yeah. He's freaked out. He actually just puts the hood back over Whitney's head and he like storms out. He's like, fuck this. I'm done. He actually leaves the room. He's like, Hey, I'm done. And as he's leaving, one of the guys is like, no, 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 you got to finish. You got to finish. And Todd's like, no, fuck you. I paid my money. If you want to finish it, you fucking finish it. I'm fucking done. And he storms off. And the guy's like, okay, back in the room, Beth is like, like pleading with Stuart. She's like, Stuart, you don't have to do this. I, I, you, I'm, it's, this is about your wife. And 
Stuart's response is, yeah, it is, but I can't kill my wife. <laughs> and he takes out a picture and he's like, look at pretty striking re- resemblance, eh? And it, again, it looks just like Beth. What are the chances that this woman looked so much like fucking Beth? But um, it's pretty clear at this point he has snapped. He is fully invested in killing Beth. I mean, it, he is gung-ho. Something has clicked within him that not only is he willing to go through with it, but he is excited for it. He is demeaning her. He is talking down to her. He's screaming at her. This is a side of him we have not seen up to this point. And it is very interesting watching these scenes kind of go back and forth. Meanwhile, you've got Todd who's rushing to this elevator, having this complete breakdown within this elevator as it's going up. He falls to his knees crying, shocked by what he's done only for the elevator doors to open and two of those fucking attack dogs get sent in and you see them lunge on him and the door is shut again. And then they open to reveal one of the more shockingly graphic body reveals I can think of in recent memory. I mean, it is disgusting. Oh, this is really a fucking great effect. You, you, his intestines are strung out. His face is tore. I mean, this is a fucking mess. This is exactly what I would expect to see somebody that was just mauled by two vicious. I mean, it's disgusting. That's all I can say. But, you know, I don't feel bad for him. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a earned end to this asshole of a character, particularly what he did with, with Whitney and just the whole, his whole I'm not sad that this man was tortoise shreds by dogs, but yeah, the, the effect is disturbing and we don't, we see it twice. This isn't the first time we see it. Now that elegant lady that helps run this event, she goes in and she's bandaged Whitney's head. And I do like the fact that now they are going around trying to auction her off for cheap because she's been injured. So, so they go to all these different killers rooms, including this cannibal who we see has Miroslav. The guy that Whitney has been like trying to fuck the entire movie, he's on this table and his leg has been hacked. To, basically, this cannibal guy who is played by actually the director of Cannibal Holocaust, which was kind of a cool thing, Rigaro Diodato, yes, has is eating poor Miroslav. He like goes over, stabs him in the leg with the knife, rips flesh out of it, takes it over to the table and eating it, and it's just so it's disgusting. It's another really great effect, definitely a practical effect at that, really well done. You see that from, like, he's amp- his one leg is amputated, the other one is skinned completely, and this gentleman, like, pleasantly smiling down on him, cuts off a piece. I mean, I'm curious, has, he already, has this man already eaten a whole goddamn leg? <laughs> How much of this man is this individual going to eat? Is he going to take some with him to go? And, like, I mean... That's a whole man and a beefy one at that. And he's kind of hot. I'm going to say it. Miroslav is a hot Russian or whatever he is. I like it. I like the look. But yeah, he's full on just chomping down on him. But he's not even a full fourth of the way into the guy. There is a lot to go. Oh, there he's. Yeah, he's right now. He's just he's just basically eating legs. He still has thigh. He still has a lot to get to. But I don't know. I don't know how long you're allowed to stay inside your little kill cell. I guess it depends on how much you've paid. But yeah, he and poor Miroslav, his. He's just, ugh, he's in, you can tell he's just like, he's thrashing and playing, he's drooling, his head is convulsing. It's like, oh God, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. They also try another guy who has a, we see inside his room, he has someone strapped to like a, an electrical, like a metal frame and he's like electrocuting this poor man to death. Oh my God. It's so, it's so like 
it's almost done with like a sense of humor as they go like room to room and you see the most like graphic things humanly possible. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really shocking. Both of these sequences uh, equally. So as, cause you see the one guy in the a background tied to this like metal bed smoking, there's literally like smoke coming from him. Uh, and right as they go to close the door, the guy goes in and shocks him again. It's, it's almost comedically played, uh, but it's a fun little moment for sure. Then they go to Stuart's room. They wheel Todd's body by Stuart. So he sees that Todd has been brutally mauled to death. I mean, he's on this like card and his intestines are all spilled out. So now Stuart knows that Todd is dead. So he runs into the room, shows Beth and he's like, this is because of your look at your friend. And he goes back out and he's like, yes, I'll take her kind of a little cop out moment. I thought, and you know, there's this it cuts to him, like leaving the room and there is one of the um, like one of the security guards is in this room and we see all of the uh, television monitors behind him. So what we see is Stuart walk into the room where Whitney is tied to the chair and he picks up a machete and right as he's going to raise it and we assume decapitate her, I guess the security guard steps in front of the camera so we can't see exactly what happens, but we just make the inference, right? For a movie that's been so like built upon just like one shocking sequence after the other. And for her to have a moment earlier on that really was really shocking. I feel like this felt like such like a a waste of a final moment for this character who's been rather prominent because not only is it shown through a monitor, but then like, yeah, like you said, like the the guard steps in front of it and and obstructs it right when the kill happens. And it's like, why? Like uh, after everything that happened in this film, why would you feel like that's something that you needed to cut away from? Like, wouldn't you want that to be a um, a big moment? It almost makes me wonder if they maybe filmed it and something didn't work out or something like that. It doesn't feel like the most well thought out choice in the movie. I'll say that. Well, particularly, no. Well, I agree. And particularly because Whitney, the Whitney character has been pretty, I mean, she's been a pretty prominent part of the film. I mean, we had to, we had to watch an extended tortuous death scene with, the Lorna character, right? The first to die. And I, I thought Whitney's character, it's been much more developed and whatnot. We followed her, her journey much longer. So I agree. I think that's a big misstep. Like one of the, I just kind of groaned and rolled my eyes because I had forgot about this, this part. Like I forgot that we don't actually see Whitney die. I guess the big thing with Whitney that stuck in my mind from my first viewing all those years ago, what was the circular saw catching her hair? I, I don't remember that we don't actually see her die. And I think that was a huge cop out. It even would have been effective if they would have, if we would have saw the whole thing happen through the monitor, but then to have the, the security guy step in front of it, right. As he raises the machete, I'm like, come on, this is an Eli Roth movie. Like we expect a little bit more than that. Right. So I was a little let down that that's the direction they went. Uh, but Stuart goes right back into Beth's room and puts Whitney's necklace on her. It's like, here, here's a little souvenir from your friend. And he is like so fucking worked up and hostile. Now he is yelling at her like she is his legitimate wife. She's like, you, tr- I'm tired of you treat me like shit. You never fuck me. This is the last time you're going to talk down to him. And, and Beth is screaming and trying to say something. He's like, what? What are you trying to say, you stupid bitch? So he takes the gag out of her mouth and she's like i'm not your wife Stuart. i'm not your wife she doesn't understand you like you like i do and she's like starts to try to flatter him she's like i wanted to kiss you last night you know but i i just didn't know how to make the move you i i i, I get you your wife doesn't and he says get on the floor so she does and he lays her on her back and then he calls her a bitch 
He's like, you fucking bitch. And then he literally gets ready to rape her. Like he's pulling his pants down and everything. When she, the badass that she is, fucking headbutts him as hard as she can and then grabs one of those like crowbars from the tool table and starts beating the shit out of him until she's able to actually wrestle this guy into the chair and strap him fucking down. She fucking steps up in this moment, man. And I really love that her character is able to so competently take him down so quickly because I do think that at the end of the day, he's having this big burst of feeling like feeling like a man, like he's really feeling like he's going to put this woman into her place. He's going to show her all of the hate and hostility he feels inside him towards his wife because, um, because she, you know, makes him just feel so awful. So he's really going to just take it out on her. And she's like, absolutely fucking not because at the end of the day, he is weak. We've seen it from him the whole film. He's weak. He's momentarily for just a brief moment feeling what it feels like to have power because this poor woman is is tied down and unable to defend herself. But at the end of the day, he is a weak character. Uh, and, and the fact that he does make this choice, it, it sucks that up to this point he's been what we thought likable. And then it sh- we saw the you know, just how dark he could get, just where he could go with this. Um, luckily, Roger Bart is a really incredible actor and does a, a great job with that sudden twist that it is rather abrupt, but at least he's well played. I think Roger Bart brings a lot of nuance to this character and internalized self-loathing that we see come out here. But as soon as she's able to get the best of him, she does because she is significantly more competent than he is. And it's, yeah, and it doesn't feel like force. This feels like a very natural progression of events. Like, I buy this. Like, I buy that this man is so just in the moment that he's not thinking. And he he thinks that he's actually taking advantage of her by getting her on the floor. And he's going to fuck. I'm going to show this bitch. I'm going to rape her. I'm going to fuck her because you never let me fuck you, as he told her. But this is all her plan. She's calculated this. That's why she said this to him. She knew that it was going to lead to this. And she takes the opportunity then to get to get him into this chair, you know, and she wants to get out of the the uh, the room and she goes to the code and she's like, what's the fucking code? What's the fucking code? And he's like, fuck you, you fucking bitch. And she grabs this like, what is it? A, a needle, like an ice pick. I think it's just like a syringe. Yeah. She's like, I asked you what the fucking code was. And this bit, I, I mean, come on. She wastes no time. She doesn't even threaten. She just shoves that thing right in his fucking ear. She's like, tell me the code. He's like, oh, it's your birthday. What's your birthday? And she's like, December 12th. He's like, yeah. She's like, oh, that's fucking sick. So she goes over and pushes 12, 12. The door opens and she is immediately charged by all of the guards and Sasha and the this broad that's been there and they have their guns pulled on her and she grabs a pair of like garden shears from the toolkit that's laid out. And it was one of the guards comes in, she beats him over the head and takes his gun. So now she's armed with a gun. She grabs the scissors and she opens them enough so that Roger Bart's dick is right in between it. And, and I think earlier, I got to say, man, I, I feel almost like with the way that they shot it, I think they implied that he did enter her for a moment. Like you see a moment where she like, physically goes like like you could see her body like react and i'm like i mean i do think that he did start the process of raping her obviously she got control of the situation but i think you know the fact that she is choosing to go for the dick is so appropriate here it is so satisfying that makes sense that makes sense because why would his dick be out in the first yeah that makes sense i kind of maybe had that suspicion but i didn't know if they if they if it went there that quickly but yeah you're right that very well could be but yeah she has this dick in these shears and they're coming at her and she screams that she wants in on this 
this is when, you know, she says, I will pay. And they're like, oh yeah, right. She's like, no, name your fucking price. I guarantee I have any, anything you want. I guarantee I have, I can buy everyone in this room. And so Sasha orders the guards to put their guns down and he comes on. She's like, I just need a, a, a routing number and I'll have the money to you within minutes. Just let me know. He's like, oh, you're going to get your parents to do it. She says, no, it's my money, motherfucker. Oh, she is. She is no bullshit. I fucking love that her character immediately goes to reason. And when she realizes exactly what is happening here, the first thing she does is say, let's negotiate this. I want to get the fuck out of here alive. I do not want to die here. And I will pay whatever amount you want. And it's so funny when they start to doubt her. She's like, I have accounted Switzerland, blah, 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 blah. She starts rattling off all of the facts. Like she's never, ever used her money or her privilege in a place um, to brag or to boast. But now when it comes to down, when it comes down to it, when you realize just how wealthy this girl is, like there's a level of respect that comes with this final moment that she she manages to secure here. Like she is a boss ass bitch. She's not just capable of fighting against this man physically. She's going to take him down financially as well. And I fucking love that. I love this finale. Well, the other, yeah. Well, there's the moment where uh, Stuart's like, I'll pay more. And Sasha's like, how? You've already t- second mortgage on your house. And this is when, yeah, she's, sorry, Beth is like, I'll pay whatever you want. Just give me the the wiring number. And Stuart looks at her and he's like, don't you realize they're going to kill you, you, t- you fucking cunt? <laughs> and she looks at him. She's like, what did you say? He's like, I said, you're a fucking cunt. With that, she snips the shears and cuts his fucking dick off. Oh, and you see it. Oh, you see it. You see her rip it away and he just leaves this big old hole in his crotch and it's gushing blood oh her little God. nuts are there and she grabs the dick and she walks out walks towards the group she's like let him bleed to death and she throws the dick one of the dogs gets a hold of it and the one guard is like oh no oh my god man she has one of the most satisfying conclusions when it comes to final girls and like the finales that they have to go through to kind of you know persevere and come out on top Beth's conclusion here is satisfying on so many levels. I mean, she's just been a likable character from the beginning on anyways, and she's really proven herself to be uh, capable and competent of defending herself, and you want to see her come out on top. And and in a situation much like you saw with the first movie and how this movie opened with Paxton, you know, you learn that just escaping these fuckers, I mean, they're going to find you. There's There's more to this than just getting away. And she realizes that because she's cool, calm, and collect in this moment, she's able to walk out with her life. And as soon as he insults her and calls her a stupid fucking cunt, like, you know, you you look back to that moment earlier in the film, you're like, oh, fuck. She's been waiting for this. And I got to say, that that fake dick effect, I mean, good for Roger Bart. I think he deserved it. They give him a pretty nice prosthetic dick here. I mean, it is a nice fat dick, but then those dogs eat it. <laughs> yeah, it's girthy. I mean, it's going to make a good meal for those dogs. Yeah, they, they, yeah, it's definitely a a nice a nice prosthetic. Yeah, they did him just oh, him bleeding out though, like shaking in the chair, like <laughs> like it's wild. I mean, what a fucking crazy end to this character. They just slam the door and leave him in there, and she looks so proud. And they're all, they're everyone's laughing and smirking. And then we cut to her getting the bloodhound tattoo because they told her there is a contract, and she's like, "I don't care, I'll sign it." So she's getting the bloodhound tattoo as she's crying. Now she's part of this 
hunting group, but she did it, like you said, to save her life. This is the only logical way she could have escaped with her life, right? And you know, she she did it. And I mean, just when we think, okay, the ending couldn't get any even more satisfying, we cut to that damn festival again, where Axel is there enjoying a beverage when one of those kids runs up, grabs her purse, takes off running into the woods. Of course, she chases after him. And as she chases after him, she's tripped by that tripwire. And all the kids come out of the darkness and surround her. But it's not the kids that beat her this time. Instead, a cloaked figure steps in front of her. She looks up. The figure pulls the hood off. And it is Beth, who is holding a large battle axe and does not waste a second to swing that axe and decapitate XL. It is truly the most satisfying way you could have ended this movie. Swift. And, you know, she just, Beth just walks away. And the kids then proceed to play soccer with XL's decapitated head. That slight element of humor and, um, and I guess, like, necessary levity that Eli Roth awesome, often likes to inject into his films because they're always so extreme. There's always got to be a little bit of humor to kind of bring you out of these really otherwise horrifying and intense moments. Um, this is definitely like a slightly comedic note as this like jaunty uh, traditional music kicks in and swells up and the kids are playing soccer and they make a goal and they celebrate with the head as the corpse bleeds out. I mean, it is pinch over the top but hell the whole series is when you think about it it's it's playing on our fears of what could happen but it's always done with a pin a pinch of just a little bit bigger than than the believable you know from the way he writes his characters to the extremes of some of the gore some of the things that happen that's just very eli roth it's always a bit larger than life um so this works here for him but overall seeing beth have a moment of pure just Fuck you to that beautiful, beautiful whore. I mean, I was so satisfied. It's one of my favorite endings. I'm going to say it right now because that bitch had it fucking coming. Yeah, no, I think this is a, cl- a textbook example of how to end a movie and make it satisfying. You know, I've I've complained many times about like this trend in horror movies where like the protagonist ends up not making it through the film. Like there was this whole trend and you could start naming a bunch of movies where this happened. where like, oh, we're going to be we're going to be edgy and kill off who who the final girl is in like the last frame of the film you know and i but i i i've never been a fan of that but i respect like this film because you were right it's 100% satisfying the two characters that deserve horrible or well, three characters that deserve horrible horrible fates in this movie meet them right i mean you get one gets mauled by a dog. One has his dick cut off and is led, left to bleed to death. And you have this bitch getting decapitated in the middle of the woods. This is what they all deserve, you know, and you can talk about, oh, well, Sasha this. and But, you know, Sasha is running this game. He is all business, right? He's not in the room killing anybody. I'm not excusing that. So I don't mind like not seeing him meet a demise. It's these horrible people that actually are that we've spent all this time with and seen how just like manipulative and, and evil they are. And so it's satisfying for me to see this happen. So yeah, I think this ending is, is wonderful. I, I, I like the ending a lot. And I think it's the one thing that really makes the film, well, this and the likable characters, just a much better entry than part one. Oh yeah. I mean, part one is definitely, and, I, and I'll say it in its own right. It's kind of groundbreaking. It's, it tackles, um, 
an idea that I think a lot of people are very scared scared of traveling out of the country for you know multiple reasons, and this cap that's this series capitalizes on that fear for sure. And I think almost you know what Jaws did for the open water, Hostel has done for. <laughs> any living situation traveling outside of the country, like anywhere that you could possibly stay. I, I do not tell me you don't think about things like this happening now because of movies like this. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've always, yeah, no, this film definitely makes you think twice overall. I mean, I, I don't, uh, yeah. I mean, my experience this time around, I, I thought the film was much more, engaging um than i did the first time i watched it i think i I just think it's an example of like a sequel that is better than the original film uh yes the heather moderatsu scene is still disturbing but uh, if you look at it from a different perspective it's it's really really a like i said a striking moment of horror cinema i think and it, it 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 deserves to be remembered as such for the horror that it portrays i mean you haven't really seen anything like that in a film before so give the film kudos to that the performances across the board are strong you got three likable characters you got the gore it's an entry i would say it's the strongest entry of the trilogy by far and i really did appreciate being able to to check it out again because yeah i i think it's a film with a lot of really positive aspects to it this movie hasn't always had like the best reception and that really surprises me you know it, this movie got skewered by critics and you will still see a lot of people like even horror fans that, that don't like this film and i think for for that i would say revisit it revisit it. i think it's been long enough okay so the heather Matarazzi scene like yes it's still shocking but for some reason in my mind it was a lot worse and it went on a lot longer than it actually does not that it's not prolonged, it is, but for some reason, Roger, I thought that this scene went on a lot longer and was a lot more like graphic. And it's really, it's not in the grand scheme of things. But I also think like I've we've seen so we've seen so many things come out in the horror community now that is that gets praised. Like, okay, so please explain to me how like a film like Terrifier 2 can get universal praise, but then you're gonna look at a film like Hostile 2, which let's be 100% serious is a better film in every respect. How is now a terrifier too? Like the pinnacle of, Oh, this is what slasher films should be. It's, it's just one of those things. Like, I think if you had a bad experience watching this film or whatever it is, go back and just revisit it because you might get a different perspective. Because I think if you look at how this film's constructed and like Roger has mentioned, all the little Easter eggs and the connections between the first film and the connections between things that show up in the first one, it's actually a pretty solidly competently made film. Yeah. Yeah. It disappoints me that it doesn't get the kind of love I feel it should deserve. I think it's really underrated. Um, and I think that, it gives me all the things I want going into this genre of horror um, down to one of my favorite final girls of all time. I, and I'll say that like without hesitation, I really think that Beth is one of the best modern final girls I can think of. Um, so, you know, it, it's so it's extremely satisfying. What a satisfying watch. I'm so happy that this, uh, kind of shed some fresh light on this film for you and gave you a new appreciation for it. That was really my goal uh, here, and I, I was hoping that would be the case, so I couldn't be happier. Oh, no, I, I definitely have a stronger feeling, positive feeling about this film now. And it is, I would agree with you, it's Eli Roth's best film. I mean, it, it is. I, I think it is by far. I would. I, I mean, we'll see what he has in store with Thanksgiving, but right now I think this is, just as a filmmaker Looking at it from a filmmaker perspective, this is his best film. 
But yeah, Hostel 2, guys, like I said, if you guys have a negative feeling about this film, please just watch it again. Maybe your opinion will change. It's, but like I said, it's been, what, 13 years, 14 years, 15 years now? My math is terrible. 2007, I think. So give it a watch because a lot has happened in the horror scene since then. And I think some things that were a little taboo, maybe at this time period or or whatnot, are starting to come back into being like, okay, for some reason now, prolonged torture scenes are looked at as being good things, right? You know, uh, whereas I think that's the one thing like Heather Matarazzo's death scene in this film, I think is a lot of, is a reason, a lot of reason why this film got slammed because, Oh, it's exploitative. Oh, it's torture porn, which you're right. It is, but it's torture porn sort of with a, with a purpose, you know? Um, so yeah, check it out and let us know your thoughts on hostile too. And, and again, check us out on, um, Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast, or give us a rating five stars, preferably on Apple podcasts. Just go to search for dark night of the podcast, click on those little five stars, write a review if you want to, but you don't have to, we've been stuck at 43 ratings for quite some time. So we want to get to that 44th. So whoever that is. We'll, we'll shout you out but real quick next week our next episode will be another sequel and i'm just gonna say it right now and just leave you with this let me in let me in we are discussing poltergeist 2 i don't know if my impression <laughs> in my impression expressed that but that's supposed to be that old fucking creepy man is it good? It's not nearly as good as my impression of Caroline. <laughs> Come and get your Caroline. Oh, that old broad! I love her. Um, but no, so we are discussing Poltergeist Two, oh, which good. I am so excited because Polter. I used to be obsessed with Poltergeist Two when I was a kid. He's horrifying. I probably watched Poltergeist 2 50 times as a kid, and and I, but I haven't watched it since. So I'm so curious to recheck it out and to actually review it with you and discuss it. So guys, tune in next week for Poltergeist 2. I'll have to get my hair cropped in his sensible heavy bangs just for the occasion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Drink some tequila while we're recording with the worm, maybe. Oh, yes. Perfect. Till then, guys. See you soon. See you soon. See you soon.